Radio Mano Papachango. thought I'd be in a position where it would make any sense at all for me to address the world. But here I am. And there you are, out there in the world. I'm sitting in my son-in-law's recording studio in Cape Town. So if it sounds pristine audio, if it sounds you're missing the, the, the crickets and birds and passing motorcycles and uh, the rest of it, that's why. I've actually got... Uh, that sound uh, absorbing sponge all around me. It's pretty cool, I gotta tell you. Uh, I don't really think a lowly podcast deserves this sort of thing, but he's a musician, so he's got this place all rigged up for serious sound baffling. Baffling, that's a good word. Baffled. I'm baffled. Um, this episode is with Kelly Carlin. Uh, she's a storyteller, a rock on tour. If I pronounce that correctly, any any French word uh, immediately makes me suspicious of myself. I, I am, I've got a thing. I've got a what what would it call a francophobia? I guess I've got francophobia, which is really uh, kind of Freudian, considering that my father's name is Frank. But I don't think it's related to Frank, my father. I think it's French. I'm um, sort of scared of. French pronunciation. I was once uh, visiting my buddy Mike in Paris where he was living for a few years and we were uh, standing in line to see a James Bond movie. This was in the 90s at some point or 80s maybe. Anyway, we were waiting in line to see a James Bond movie in the original, you know, in English. And we were just chatting, a couple of guys, not being obnoxious American tourists, just a couple of dudes talking. And uh, after a while, the people in front of us in line turned around and said something to Mike in French. And his face registered extreme distress. And I said, what, what did they say, man? He said, they asked me to stop speaking English because it was bothering them. Fucking French. Anyway. That was the same visit where my parents came over to visit, and Frank, the, the aforementioned Frank, uh, we went out to dinner in a nice restaurant that, uh, you know, Mike had picked out to impress my parents and, you know, give them a memorable Parisian experience. Uh, and my father, as was his wont, ordered a cocktail before dinner, which is sort of, you know, an American custom of a certain, uh, you know, a certain time. He was a guy who always had an expense account and, you know, took clients out for dinner and they'd all get boozed up and stuff. So anyway, he ordered a vodka tonic and the waiter, everything was being, you know, through Mike because none of us spoke French and the waiter certainly didn't speak English. And the waiter said something to Mike and then <laughs> Mike was in the terrible, <laughs> awkward position of telling my father that they refused to serve cocktails before dinner because it uh, deadened the sense of taste or whatever. 
it was a, a real cultural moment there. Anyway, uh, I am sitting in Cape Town, as I mentioned, and this episode is with Kelly Carlin, who is really cool. I was so happy that she agreed to meet with me when I was in L.A. Uh, a month or two ago. I think it was basically because she knows uh, we have some some friends in common. I think Duncan Trussell being uh, the the main one. So uh, on Duncan's recommendation, she agreed to have me come over and uh, hang out for a while in her in her woman cave. And uh, it was a great, really fun conversation. It was an honor to meet her. Not not only because I grew up admiring her father, but because she is uh, a very interesting person in her own right. And as you'd have to be, you know, to, to grow up in that environment and find your own identity, it would be so easy to just be overwhelmed and baffled by uh, the swirling fame and attention that was uh, directed toward her father throughout her life, as, as I understand it. Um, but she has found herself, found her own identity, her own place in the world, and uh, she's doing great. And uh, I can tell you her house is full of beautiful art, and its uh, I won't tell you where it is, but it's, uh, it's a really nice place, and it was great to be there. It's very comfortable for me as a, you know, when you visit someone you don't know, you never know how weird it's going to be, and it wasn't weird at all, at least for me. Maybe it was weird for her. Who knows? But for me, it wasn't weird. I had a great time, and I hope you enjoy listening in on our conversation. So I, when you hear this, I will be, uh, in a few days, I will be on a safari. Yeah, a fucking safari. Imagine that. Um, I will be flying up to Windhoek, Namibia, and then uh, I'll be off on a safari for 10 days that goes from... Let's see, through Namibia and then uh, Botswana, which I have long wanted to see. We'll be going through the, the desert there, the Kalahari, where the Kung San Bushmen, uh, they've been known by all those names over the years, uh, live. There's an amazing book. I know some of you uh, enjoy the book recommendations I make on this podcast. Most of them just, you know, I just pull them out of my ass in the middle of a conversation, but <clears throat> this one is really one of my favorite books of all time. It's called Nisa, N-I-S-A, and it's by Marjorie Shostak, S-H-O-S-T-A-K, I believe. It's um, it's an amazing story. She wrote this, I think it was in the late 60s, and if I'm not mistaken, she was married to Richard Lee, who is a very famous anthropologist who teaches at Harvard now. If I remember correctly, uh, the story is that she and Richard Lee were in graduate school together at Harvard in anthropology. And I don't know if they were married at the time or I, I don't I don't know the details, but she was um, doing her, her doctoral field work and she went to Botswana, went out to the desert because these are among the very few uh, hunter-gatherer, true hunter-gatherer societies left in the world. I don't know how intact they are at this point, but in the late 60s, they were still uh, pretty uh, intact as a, as a culture. And uh, she learned the language, and she went uh, out there to live with them. And 
this was, you know, as I said, late 60s, there was a lot going on with the women's rights and, uh, you know, sort of the emancipation of women and uh, women were just breaking into fields like anthropology, primatology, archaeology, um, which revolutionized those fields because, you know, even the best intention of men look at the world from a man's perspective. There's just no way around that. It's like racism. You're white. You see the world through a certain filter. Uh, you're rich. You see the world through a certain filter. You're poor. You're, you know, whatever you are. You've got a physical handicap. You've got whatever it is. Those things distort the way you see the world, right? So, uh, there was an amazing, uh, memorable example of this where there was um, uh, primatologists were very confused by this particular uh, species of monkey. I don't remember which it was, some monkey from South America. And they um, they had a male in the cage and they were trying to get the males to breed. And they'd like put one female in and it, nothing would happen. So then they thought, well, they must be polygamous. So they put another female in and then there's all this fighting and killing and all this terrible stuff and the breeding still wouldn't happen. And they were depressed and all and they put in more females until they had like one male and 10 females and still nothing was happening. Happening. And finally, a woman graduate student looked at it and said, well, you know, maybe it works the other way. So she put in one female and several males, which all the male primatologists thought would result in chaos. And the males will fight over the female because that's the way sex works. Right. But it turns out that this particular species, no, it's a, a polyandrous species. So the females there's one female and several males, and that's the way they mate. That's the sort of uh, nuclear social structure of that particular species. But the, the male primatologist, it never occurred to them that that could possibly be the situation. Uh, similarly, for decades, until the 70s, I believe, it was thought that no female animal other than humans, was capable of orgasm. The male primatologists and male biologists looked at all these animals mating and said, yeah, well, the male ejaculates, that's obvious. Uh, so there's male orgasm, but females don't orgasm. In fact, it was this was one of the things on the... Uh, the sort of hilarious list of characteristics that biologists uh, have been keeping for uh, decades, trying to... Uh, narrow down what is it that makes human beings unique. So there were all these things on the list, like, you know, we're the only species that uses tools. And then they find, oh, no, all these other species use tools. Otters, you know, use a rock to crack open shellfish. And uh, chimpanzees use uh, twigs to fish out termites and all that. So, okay, then we're the only species that does this or that or whatever. And there are all these different things listed, uh, virtually all of which get crossed off after a while. But one of those things on the list was the female orgasm. And then, of course, once women scientists started looking at this mating behavior, they're like, of course these females are coming. Look at her. Just look at her face. Of course that's an orgasm, you idiots. Anyway, what the hell am I talking about? Nisa. So uh, Marjorie Shostak goes to... Botswana learns the language and she goes out and then the idea is that she wants to study women's experience in this society and sort of do a, a general broad survey of the experience of women in the, the Kung. That's that 
by the way, is the upside down exclamation point that you'll see sometimes in text. That indicates the click. Uh, where I am now in Cape Town, uh, people, it's Shosha, I think is the name of the language. It begins with an X and it includes clicks. So even in the airport, I heard people talking and in the midst of the conversation, you'll hear and it's just part of it's one of the phenomes of the language. Anyway, she went to these villages and found that it was very difficult to get the women to talk about their private, intimate experiences with her. You know, she was asking about love and sex and, you know, relations with men and family stuff and all. And the women just weren't weren't interested in telling her. And why should they? She's some weird stranger from, you know, another planet as far as they're concerned. But she came across one woman, Nisa. And this woman understood what was going on. She understood that this woman came from another world, but that she really wanted to understand how their world worked. And Anthropologists talk about this a lot when they're doing field work. They will, you know, most people just don't understand what you're doing, why you're there. But, you know, okay, fine. You can hang around. You brought chocolate. You know, you bring money to the village. There's you're uh, kind of silly and funny and because you don't know how anything works. So you're like a big baby. And so that's you're amusing. But every once in a while, they'll meet someone who gets it. They understand what you're trying to do. Um, they understand the curiosity about other worlds and other lives. So Nisa understood this. And Nisa basically said, uh, okay, let's just talk. I'll tell you. I'll tell you whatever you want to know. And so Shostak's research ended up being a very in-depth um, look at this one woman's experience as opposed to a broad survey. And then uh, later, working from her notes, she wrote this book. Um, and the book is just broken up into different stages of life, childhood and teenage years and becoming a woman and then romance and sex and having children and the death of her parents and so on. And then her own aging process. I think Nisa was probably in her 60s, maybe 50s or 60s when uh, Shostak wrote the book. It is amazing. It's um, because as you read the book, um, and I, I don't want you to get the impression that it's dry scientific language. It's not. I'm sure that's what her dissertation was. But the book is very readable, very easy to to understand what's going on. And as you're reading the book, you know, it's it's like you're constantly having two reactions. At least I was. On the one side, it's like, wow, this is such an alien world. This is so different. I mean, they live in these little huts that they throw together in a day, not in a house that it takes 30 years to pay off in a mortgage. They move constantly. They're, you know, 10 kilometers or something a day. They move from village to, not village, from site, campsite to campsite. They eat what they gather during the day. They, they It's very fluid. They come and go as they please. It's a true hunter-gatherer society. Uh, they sleep on the ground. They're, you know, it's it's what you imagine hunter gatherers to be. And then on the other side, simultaneous with this constant sense of how distant and alien that world is, it's so 
fucking familiar. The things she's going through, the things she's thinking about, the way relationships begin and sour and then maybe they come back or maybe they just end. And the way she thinks about her children, the way she thinks about her parents and the aging of her parents, the way friendships blossom and change over time, all these things, the way she feels as she gets older, these things are so deeply familiar and intimate and exactly what you and I and everyone we know is going through all the time. So it's a wonderful book, Nisa, Marjorie Shostak. And and it's also very moving because during the course of her research, um, or maybe it was after she wrote Nisa and she was back at Harvard, finished her degree. Somewhere in there, she was diagnosed, Shostak, uh, with cancer. I think it was breast cancer. And then uh, and she had just a little time left to live. And during that time, when she already knew she was dying, she went back to Botswana and visited Nisa again. And um, I think, and she wrote a book about that as well. I think it's called Return to Nisa. But in any case, you'll you'll see it if you look for her work. Um, very moving. Very, very touching. Uh, I cried like a fucking baby reading that book, uh, Return to Nisa. But Nisa itself, if you want to avoid the sadness and just get the anthropological insight, uh, Nisa is an amazing book. Hey, thank you, all of you who are who have remembered to, to set up your Amazon uh, link through my webpage. It's very easy to do. Go to chrisryanphd.com, look for the Amazon ad there on the right banner or the right uh, margin. Click on that and then bookmark where you land on Amazon as your Amazon page. And then every time you go through that page, my code is embedded in there somewhere and uh, seven to eight percent of whatever you spend at Amazon comes to support the podcast. Uh, I see that a lot of you have done that and it is wonderful. It's a great source of revenue for the podcast. Um, it almost we're almost to the point now where it's uh, it's paying for itself, not quite. And we're three years into it. So um, it's been an interesting sort of reverse investment. But I love it. I have a great time doing this podcast, so I'd be doing it even if I weren't making a dime from it, probably. But in any case, um, I really appreciate the the revenue that comes in from there. And it's funny, people buy all sorts of stuff. I've, it's been a while since I've read anything. But like here, somebody bought a an upper intake manifold for their Ford truck, and we got 12 bucks from that. Very cool. Thank you. If you're studying and you're paying for those incredibly overpriced books, uh, one way to uh, at least get a little of that money coming to us instead of to Amazon is by using that affiliate link. Somebody bought a copy of Business Statistics Binder Ready Version for $185. Now, whoever's charging $185 for a goddamn book should be drawn and quartered, but that's another issue. In any case, $13.88 out of that 185 came to support the podcast. So thank you, whoever is out there studying business statistics 
and listening to this podcast. You are an interesting person because those are two very unrelated things you're doing. Whoever bought the CyberPower PC Gamer Ultra gaming desktop quad core, looks like a pretty deluxe version, uh, 20 bucks of that came to support the podcast, for which I am grateful. Someone bought a commercial-grade black fence privacy screen. Oh, yeah. What are you doing in your backyard that you don't want the neighbors to see? Whatever it is, keep doing it, because we got 27 bucks for the podcast out of that. Thank you very much. Someone else bought a Virgo industrial heavy-duty pallet jack truck. What? So you're, you got a warehouse or something? I think these are marijuana growers. I think these marijuana growers, whoever you are, your marijuana grower, thank you for buying your stuff through the podcast website because that is another $26 toward the podcast. All right. Somebody bought a Newman KH120 Active Studio Monitor. Sounds like a musician to me. They bought two of them, actually. $112 came to the podcast. Now, of course, I'm only reading these sort of high price items, but there are lots of 25 cents, 77 cents, 16 cents, and they add up. So please don't get the idea that, uh, you know, it's not worth doing if you're only buying something expensive, because then you forget. I mean, I buy shit on Amazon and I forget to, I used to forget to go through until I bookmarked it like that. Now I don't have to worry about it anymore. But it always pissed me off. I buy a printer or something and then I'm like, oh shit, I forgot to go through my thing. Anyway, uh, those small purchases add up, and uh, we appreciate those every bit as much. Speaking of which, somebody bought a LaserJet Enterprise printer. $24 came to the podcast. Thank you. Hey, somebody bought a Squatty Potty, the original bathroom toilet stool, 7-inch, white. Nice. Hope you enjoy using that. I'll tell you, in Thailand, it's pretty cool in Thailand. You've got some Squatty Potties, but most of the toilets are just regular toilets. But they all have one of those little handheld uh, squirt guns right next to the toilet. So when you take a dump, you just squirt your ass with that thing, and it's perfect. It's fantastic. It's like your own little personal colonic irrigation. Some of them have, like, really high water pressure, so you have to be careful. Speaking of which, did I tell you about the colonic irrigation I had in, in Chiang Mai? You probably don't want to hear about this, but Cassie had one and she loved it so much. She came back and it was like, you have to do this. Now, there are two things going on here. One is those of you who are in long-term relationships know there, there are moments when the other person recommends something so highly that if you refuse, it becomes a fissure in your relationship, you know? I mean, she can say, hey, this fish is really good. You can try it. And I'd be like, yeah, I don't really like that kind of fish or yeah, I'm fine with this or whatever. That's fine. But sometimes there's something where it's like, you need to do this. You Trust me, you need to do this. And for you to say no means like, no, I don't trust you or, you know, whatever. I just don't want to. And that was that was one of these moments. So it's kind of like, really, really? I need to put a hose up my ass to like not offend you here? So I did. Um, for those of you who have not done that, um, I'm not going to insist that you do it. It's uh, For me, it was like, yeah, okay, whatever. 
I mean, Cassie had like, you know, she came back. She felt so great. She felt detoxed. She, you know, all apparently all these weird things were coming out of her pebbles and car keys and mood rings from the 80s. And I mean, all sorts of stuff. Uh, I did it and, you know, nothing came out other than what you would expect to come out. And then it was like uh, done. And then it was like because you sort of sit on this little hose and then and they've got it set. So like all this stuff that comes out of you goes down this um, uh, this sort of clear tube and they've got a light and a mirror. So you look and you can see all this whatever comes out of you. And I guess some pretty nasty, weird colored stuff comes out of people and it makes them feel better. Like, oh, my God, that was green. I'm glad that's out of me. Nah, what came out of me was the same thing that always comes out of me. So I personally, I, I guess the lesson I learned was uh, I've got a pretty efficient digestive system. I think that's pretty much what I learned from that. Uh, other people probably hold things or they're, you know, weird pockets or whatever, but uh, for me, it was not really a life-changing experience. Why am I talking about that? Oh, because the Squatty Potty. So thank you, all of you. That's enough Amazon ranting. Thank you for doing all that. I really appreciate it. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kelly Carlin. And I hope that Kelly is not offended by the fact that uh, I chose her episode to talk about my colonic irrigation. I assure you, Kelly, if you hear this, that has nothing to do with you. It's purely uh, circumstance. So I will be in the desert. Uh, oh, by the way, that that uh, I never finished. So the the um, the safari goes through Botswana, starts in Namibia, Botswana, and then Zambia uh, goes to Victoria Falls, and then uh, quick drive back to Namibia. So that's the ten days. Really looking forward to that. I will talk to you. I'm going to hopefully if I meet people, interesting people who are willing to, to chat and we find time, I'll take my gear on the safari. And so maybe I'll record an episode or two with a guide or somebody out there. We'll see how it goes. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting the podcast. I hope everybody's doing great out there. I've been recording some really interesting conversations on the road here. I met with uh, Bennett, the uh, the guy who run Shore Design t-shirts. Uh, we had a really nice chat in Thailand, kind of quick one because we had to rush off to the airport, but it was great to catch up with him a little bit. And of course, by now you've heard the Viram episodes. That was wonderful. And uh, so I'll be um, you know, trying to get to the ones that are in the can, but also releasing some of the, the newly recorded ones as we go along. That's enough for me. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. I hope everything's going great for you out there. I'm going to play you out with a song called Alibi by a friend of the podcast, James Thomas. Thank you, James. Lovely song. Goodbye, world. <laughs> Cigarette, I can't quit, not quite yet. There's 
There's such a thin line between the modern in me and the old slave chain to the black or tree. But every way's another way home. Maybe I'll crack the code. Her love lacked the quality romance or poverty to make me believe she was worth all the life in me. You're making me shake, girl, up and down So the sky gets big and the world turns round You are the dream You are the light Out at the crossroads in the dark of the night You are the alibi You are the reason why I keep staggering all of my life You are the way I go Mama, don't you know The way you shine I want to fit in, but I feel so much better reading the map on my own. So blindfold the eyes of the future in me, cause I don't want to see what died in my sleep. Make me more like a river, Lord, and less like a stone. You are the dream. You are the light. Out at the crossroads in the dark of the night. You are the alibi, you are the reason why I keep staggering all of my life. You are the way I go, and mama, don't you know the way you shine? I am here with Kelly Carlin sitting at a poker table covered in green felt or velvet or what is um, that? I would I would guess it was fake velvet. Fake velvet? <laughs> Velveteen. Is, that, is there such a thing as real velvet? Like does it come from a velvet lamb or something? Cheap velvet. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it's like genuine leatherette. What yes, the hell is that? This would be the non-genuine velvet. Right. I, I guess it's velvet-like. Yeah, velveteen. I like that. Um, and is this Billy Jack? It Am is. I looking at a painting of Billy Jack right? here? That's amazing. My friend Chris Bono paints amazing portraits of famous people, all sorts of people, and he painted a Billy Jack. Um, Billy Jack was my first crush as a very young girl. I saw the movie and something happened in my genital area. <laughs> you know that feeling mm. when like in when you're like prepubescent, oh, like yeah. you don't quite know what sex is yet. But yeah. this thing kind of happens in your body and it's a new sensation. Yeah. And I had a total crush on him and um, and Bono had painted another portrait of him and I saw it and I'm like I think I need a Billy Jack painting in my house to remind me of my early sexual stirrings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For me, I think I'd have to have a painting of a washing machine. 
Because top load. <laughs> oh, definitely a front loader. I had back loader if I could find one. <laughs> they don't sell them anymore. Oh God, no! My first uh, sexual experience was um, with a cat, actually. I told this story. Do you know who Joe Rogan is? Sure. So I was on his podcast uh, with Duncan Trussell, another comic, and I, I told this story, and it left them both silent. It's one of the proudest moments of my life. <laughs> These two guys who always have something to say just sat there staring at me. And so people who listen to the podcast have heard this before, but like very briefly, um, I was like, 10 or 9 or something mm -hmm. and my parents were playing bridge they had these friends they'd play bridge with yes so for some reason i was taken to the bridge party i think the, the babysitter fell through at the last minute or something and so you and i are roughly the same age yeah. i think you were 52. born in 63 yep. right um so you remember like early 70s like love american style sure. and all that kind of shit yep so they put me down in the basement game room family, uh -huh. you know remember those too yes. with the shag carpet yes, and all that. totally and uh so like and they said keep the door closed because the cat's in heat i'd mm -hmm. never heard that phrase before and right. i thought they meant the cat it was hot <laughs> of course and they had the ac on so like i don't know well they don't i don't know the cat's hot okay so i go down and I'm watching Love American Style and the Partridge Family and that whole like yes. you know sequence. Kung Fu was yes. big in those days. Yeah. And by the way, which relates to Billy Jack. Uh huh. Uh, you know we yep. can, we can talk about that. Um, but uh, yeah, so this cat was just like going nuts, mm -hmm. just rubbing up against my leg and like looking at me with this pleading. You know, <laughs> God, dude, help me here. Anything. Anything. And there was this this pencil on the table next to the sofa, <laughs> like unsharpened, just yellow number two pencil. Right. And for some reason, I held the pencil down, eraser out, and this cat jumped up on the, like, started humping the pencil. Oh, my God. And I kind of freaked out a little bit, like, oh, it's going to hurt the cat. So I pulled the pencil away, and the cat turns and looks at me like, hey. Dude. Hey, limp dick, you know, don't leave me hanging here. <laughs> so, I, and, I, and I understood, like, oh, uh, yeah, she wasn't, that wasn't hurting her. So, and I wasn't, like, doing anything. I was just holding it. Like, you want to do it, you do it. I'll I just look away. Pencil. I'm just a pencil holder. <laughs> pencil dick. <laughs> and she, she humped that pencil and then, uh, you know, sort of arched her back and, and, and then just flopped over and wow. started cleaning her face and looked at me with so much gratitude <laughs> and love. Who knew? I was like, I'm going to be a sex expert. <laughs> I just made this cat come. Holy shit. Even though I don't know what any of those words mean yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's what heat is. Bring it on. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. I could see Joe Rogan being silent. Yeah, yeah. That's the two of them. Sort that's of. hysterical. I also told that story publicly. Um, do you know what what's it called? There's a podcast called um, Risk. Yeah, I did. I've done, I did this the story show yeah, out here. Yeah, right. So the I they asked me to do. I guess I did one that they recorded online and then they produced it and all that. Right. And then they asked me, which which is about getting stung by a scorpion while tripping on acid on top of a 
temple in Guatemala. Jesus Christ. That was an interesting night. But um, so then they said, like, oh, we'd love you, you know, tell that story live because we're doing this thing in L.A. and Hollywood. Yeah, that Nerdist room. The Nerdist thing, yeah. So they said, it's going to be a storytelling night. That'll be great. Okay, so I go to the thing. And it's like, it's all these comics. Like yes. Andy Dick and, and yeah. I, I don't remember, like four or five comics. And I was like, well, this isn't storytelling. This is like open mic comic night. Yeah, it's supposed to be storytelling. They're supposed to go out. Uh, the night yeah. I did it, everyone told a story. Oh, well, really? Well, you're right. I they mean, were the, just doing their the material. The comics go up and they do, yeah, yeah, sort of storytelling. I'm a storyteller, so I tell you a go story. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to be there telling a story. Well, I, I mean, I'm standing there and I was like fifth or something. And, and by the time I went up, I was like, there's no way after four comics... I'm going to go up and tell some story about getting stung by a scorpion and thinking I was dying and, you know, blah, 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 because right. it's not really a funny story. Right. So I thought, well, I'll tell the cat story, mm-hmm. which I had never told publicly. Right. It, people were uncomfortable. <laughs> <believe me. laughs> See, but here's my theory about the storytelling thing. I, you know, I, I don't worry about it anymore because people want both. People want... Andy Dick to go up there and be funny and be irreverent and, and all of that stuff. And then people also want to bring, people want people to bring something with some depths and some mm. pathos also. And that's what I love to bring to those right. rooms because right. I, I'm not going to be a stand, I'm not a stand-up comic. My job is not to make people laugh. My job is to make people feel something, whether it's mm. joy or sorrow. Right. And, um, so I have a little, and I have some, I guess, experience in these L.A. storytelling rooms. And I just, I used to worry about it a lot. And now I've really seen that when I, when I do show up and I bring what I know is powerful, powerful is powerful. Right. You know? Well, you're ballsier than I am. I don't know. I, Telling that cat story is pretty fucking ballsy. Well, <laughs> <laughs> inadvertently ballsy. That's, that, that's what they should put on my tombstone. Inadvertently ballsy. <laughs> he was, he, <laughs> He painted himself into lots of corners. <laughs> well, also because, you know, I love the, there's a, the formula comics often refer to as you dig a hole and then, then climb out of it. Yes. And I think in the case with the, the cat thing, I started off, I said, yeah, my first sexual experience was with a cat and everyone was just quiet and awkward <laughs> going, and uncomfortable. Oh dear, this is going to be weird. And I said, I said, well, no, you know, don't get the wrong idea. It was a female cat. <laughs> Right? <laughs> and that made it even worse. And then I said, and and she was into it. So I dug the hole like really deep. Beautiful. So then I thought I'm gonna in front. So now I'm gonna try to charm my way out of yes. this. And by the end, they'll see like, oh, okay, well, yeah, yeah. I guess he had sex with a cat, but he wasn't fucking it. He wasn't right. raping it. It wasn't right. all these things they'd assumed. And I think, you know, I almost got back to the surface, but not quite. There were still people sort of like. Um, <laughs> What did I just hear? <laughs> Should I be reporting him? <laughs> exactly. Should we call PETA yeah. at this point? What's Not quite sure. So that's why I live in Spain. You know, this Get makes a here. lot of sense now. Yeah. This is perfectly Running logical. Running from the cops. <laughs> the cat cops. <laughs> the, 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 yeah, well, who are the cat cops? The, uh, what's the, the, the ASPCA? Yeah. The SPCA. Yeah, they, the A gets dropped sometimes. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Um, I think because there's uh, maybe it's not always the American. Maybe it's a maybe there's a oh it's just maybe the there's society. a BSPCA like the British Society. Oh, oh yeah, 
You could see the Brits doing something like that. I'm sure they have some animal protective. I'm sure they do. Organization of blue-haired old ladies. And they have like a thrift shop to support it. <laughs> <laughs> Ye oldie something. So, um, okay, so our deal is you're not going to ask me about monkey balls and I'm not going to ask you about your father's parenting. Is that was that our deal? Or or yeah, yeah, or yeah, you know. I was thinking we I was going to talk a little bit about him. I was going to fuck know. with you a little bit because my idea was to come in, turn on the mics and say, "So, what was it like being raised by George Carlin?" because that's exactly what you asked me not to do. But then I thought someone I don't know that might that could be disastrous. I could ask you to leave. You could, or you could just say, tell me about monkey balls. <laughs> the deal's off. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> exactly. Well, you've already told me about, you know, having sex with a cat, so yeah. I, I think pretty much anything goes at this point. At this point, we've yeah. broken the ice, I, I would say. So. Yeah, that's a good thing about cat sex. So <laughs> Billy Jack is, I mean, I had a thing for Kwai Chang Kane. Mm-hmm. Um, if I had any bisexual capacity at all, mm-hmm. that would have been, you know, yeah, Bruce Lee me for me over. too. Uh, Enter the Dragon. Well, Bruce film. Lee, who was supposed to be Kwai Chang Kang, yeah, you know, he developed a character and then they took it away at the last minute because he was too Asian. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking assholes. And then, I mean, Billy Jack, he's white. Yeah. He's the white guy who's like, feels Indian spirit in me, you know? Yes. It's like, everyone has to be white, even the Indians and the Asians. Everyone has to be white. Remember back when, like, in the 30s and the 40s when and 50s, you know, when white people would play Chinese characters yeah. and they would, like, make their eyes sort of Chinese-looking. <laughs> or that guy, <laughs> this is all very generational, but people listening to this will be like, what are they talking about? But you remember that famous litter commercial? Um, uh, the Indian is in the 70s, same period as oh, Billy Jack. yes, And yes. they throw the litter and yes, the American and Indian the standing there. And he, yeah. Yes, yes. That, that guy was Italian. <laughs> It was Iron Eyes Cody was his oh name. Oh, my God. And he was he a was fucking Italian. Italian. Yeah. It's like, how hard is it to find an Indian who how can stand there? And you know, We didn't kill all of them. I know. They're, There's a few around. Historically, it's interesting. Like, we killed them, but then you go to Latin America, there are Indians everywhere. Yes. Because the Spanish approach was we fuck them. Yes, but, oh, we integrate our, our DNA with them. Right. And then bring our bring our God to them. Yeah, yeah, force our God down there to yeah, burn yeah. all their... Do you ever read um, The Conquest of New Spain by Bernal Diaz? No. It's, a, it's an amazing book. He was one of the soldiers, uh, he was an officer, but like a mid-level officer uh, with Cortez. Mm-hmm. And at the end of his life, he had no property, he had nothing to leave his family, so he sat down and wrote this book of his experiences. Wow. Or maybe he dictated it. I don't even think he was literate. Um, so it's very, like, on the ground. It's not, you know, the big uh, shots the making themselves right, heroes. He's, he's the guy walking through the jungle. Right, yeah, exactly. Wow. It's It's really good. And I had a sort of a mystical experience with that book. Um, I was reading it in Guatemala, in this town called Antigua, mm-hmm. beautiful town in Guatemala. And um, there are ruins everywhere because there's a big volcano and the volcano erupts every hundred years and wipes everything out and there are earthquakes all the time. And so there's all this sort of mixture of epochs, you know. And um, so I was reading this book and I finished it. I was sitting in a cafe and I finished it and I was really immersed in it. And, you know, I'm in the place where all these things happened and I was very sort of... uh, 
just feeling it in my blood. And I assumed that he had written it in Spain, you know, after when he went back and he died in Spain. And I was walking along back to this little house where we were staying, and there's a plaque on one of the ruined cathedrals, and it said, on this site, Bernal Diaz wrote the conquest oh, of what Spain. what the fuck? It's like, wow, he was here. He was like a block from where I was sitting, writing wow, this. Wow, that's some good synchronicity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Wow. Yeah, I had a lot of weird experience. That was the same trip where we took acid and climbed to the top of this temple in Tikal uh, to watch the full moon rise over the jungle. Yes. And I got stung by a scorpion, and it let, you know. And then this Guatemalan guy said, "Oh, they're fatal." And so I had this bizarre night of thinking I was death. dying. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was interesting. Huh. But not as funny as fucking a cat. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so have you have you been in LA a long time? My whole is this life, your, yeah. So you're a, been here a since native. I was three. You're an Angelino. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I yeah, I think when you're, I mean, all my kind of my earliest memories are all here. I have very vague memories of New York City, but but yeah, I've, I've seen this town change in the last fifty years a I'll lot. I bet. Yeah. We've been living in Portland, Oregon for the last year and a I half. I love Portland. Yeah, it's nice. It's yeah. changing fast. Yeah, it's been changing wow. for the last 15 years yeah. a lot. But it's it's still yeah. groovy. You can still fly your freak flag there. You can. Which is what I love about it. You, you can, know, You really yeah. feel like everything is possible and accepted. And uh, it's like the complete opposite of San Francisco, where everyone's judging you for everything. <laughs> Yeah, San Francisco is this beautiful city with the most judgmental people living in it. You know, yeah. it's the weirdest vibe there. Uh, but Portland, I always have felt very like, wow, man, I could walk around with a tutu on and a topless and, uh, you know, singing in Farsi. And people would be like, yeah, yeah, totally, man, you rock. Yeah, it's true. It's true. The only... What is that? Oh, that's my phone. That's Steely Dan. That is Steely Dan. Oh, yeah, Dan. that's Steely Dan. That's my Uncle Dan calling. Uncle Dan. I'm not going to answer. With the Steely Dan. Steely Dan. Hey, 19. <sighs> I love Great that album. song. I love everything by Steely Dan, Me really. Too. They're one of my favorite bands. Me you too. too? Really? Huge. Oh. Huge. Yeah, huge God, influence. We have so much in common. We do. Why didn't we meet 20 I, years ago? It was meant to be today. Things could be so different. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that would make my, my father very proud. Like, hey, Dad, I'm going out with George Carlin's daughter. That would that, He'd just smile and die right there. That would be the end. <laughs> class Clown was, he, he brought home Class Clown, and that was like one of those things where like, my dad's cool. Yeah, your I'm dad brought 12, home Class Yeah. And he's putting this on, and listen to this, you're going to love this. That's a good dad. Yeah, and also he was, a, he, my dad's a lapsed Catholic. Uh-huh. You know, grew up in the East Coast, oh, yeah. you so know, so he and, wheelhouse. yeah, there's it, really speaking yeah. his language. Yep, yep, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So you just got, you just finished a book tour. I just finished, yeah, I guess that's what they call it. I mean, I didn't like get on an airplane and go to 50 cities or anything. I went to New York and and did a ton of media and was out right. here and did a t I did two and a half months of media. It was insane. And then I'll be traveling a bit around the country this year coming up with speeches and solo show stuff. And when I do, I'll do some book stuff then, you know. But do you want yeah, to talk I, about the book? Yeah, yeah, I would love to, yeah. So tell me about the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a 15-year dream. It's something that, it's the first time in my life that I've done like I've had a vision of something that I've wanted to do and it's been in my soul and my heart and my mind mm. for a long time and it's come to fruition. So it's, um, I'm, I'm just kind of learning 
how to be with that, what, mm. what even that feels like in a life. It's um, your first book. Yes, it's mm -hmm. my first book, and it was published by a real publisher, St. Mm -hmm. Martin's Press. They're in the Flatiron Building in New York they City. They are real. Which is very cool. Yeah, it's a nice building. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, when my mom died in 97, can you hear that? I can. Oh, what? Is it going to bother you, the podcast, the music? Oh, I don't hear music. Okay, good. No, right. I thought you meant could I hear yeah. music. Um, in 97, my mom died suddenly of liver cancer. Oh. She was diagnosed, and five weeks later, she was dead. Oof. She died from the chemo, but she only had a few weeks probably past that. Right. And when that happened, I was 34, and um, it, was, it was startling and traumatic and um, life-changing, and I had, a, I had a big awakening, you know, like, oh, <laughs> death, <laughs> that thing, it's real. And your dad was still alive at oh, that yeah. point? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, my dad died seven years ago. Yeah. Um, and um, it was my, f I mean, I'd had other people die in my life before, but my, my, I was very, I'm an only child, so I'm very, very close to my parents, right. very enmeshed. Right. That's a lot of what my story is about. Right. But when my mom died, I, it was that, I don't know if you've had that moment in your life where you're like, oh, shit or get off the pot. Like, oh, life is short. Like, you could be hit by a bus tomorrow. Like, all this dreaming I do and all this pining and wanting and longing to be ex expressed and express myself and be creative. Um, I'd been tap dancing around for a long time and uh, decided that I wanted to jump in. And the art form that really turned me on and really fed me and really felt that I could participate in in some way and was very powerful to me was personal storytelling. Um, I'd seen Spalding Gray. Oh, and, great. Um, yeah. And you he, saw him in person. I saw him twice or three times live, yes, but I saw him in my late 20s when I was going through a tough time in my first marriage and was very lost and saw him at UCLA and it was like, oh, there's a crazy person on stage who's sharing his insanity with us. Yeah. And we're not only being entertained, but I'm now feeling safer in the world because I'm as crazy as he is. <laughs> yeah. You know, for, so, for people who don't know who he is, Google Spalding Gray, obviously, but uh, Swimming to Cambodia. Swimming to Cambodia and Monster in a Box Monster are his two box, big yeah. films. Jonathan Demi. Jonathan Demi uh, yeah. directed Swimming to Swimming Cambodia, in Cambodia yeah. for sure. I don't yeah. know who directed the second one. Um, and he ended up jumping off the Staten Island Ferry, I think, about... What is that about? Yeah, two years ago. Uh, yeah, a while ago. Five years ago, maybe yeah, something like that. Well, two years um, to me. I know, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I saw him. I saw Karen Finley, who was a very famous performance artist mm -hmm. in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, who was one of the NEA four that you know had been given a grant and did stuff like smear chocolate syrup on her boobs on stage, and people thought oh, she was crazy. Oh, I know her. Uh, but yeah. very powerful, passionate, emotional performance artist on stage really ripped mm. my heart and mind open. And so I knew I wanted to do a solo show of some kind. And so after my mom died, a couple of years after that, I started just sitting down and writing out my story because I knew I had this great survivor story. Mm -hmm. Not only had I lived an incredibly unique and amazing childhood being my dad's daughter and being on the road with him and all of the crazy kind of drug and alcohol stories that my parents provided for me because my mom was an alcoholic till I was 12 and my dad was uh, 
a cocaine user for uh, in the in the mid 70s, pretty heavily. Uh, so there was insane stories there, and there was just some great moments in our life, and a lot of love in our family. And then I'd had a crazy. Uh, teenage years here in LA with you know money mm. and cars and drugs and a private you know crazy private school and very uh, cool parents we all had mm. so we all lived in the fast lanes. So you live in where Brentwood. Brentwood, right? <laughs> yeah, the Palisades and then Brentwood. Yeah. Um, and then um, and then I had a crazy first marriage in my twenties and and I had agoraphobia and I'd been in a, abusive relationships. I just I'd already lived like five lives by the time I was 35 and then my mother's death and I wanted to write this story about how my mother's death kind of woke me up to the fact that you know our lives were, were always distracted by our family story or what the culture the role that the culture wants us to play and then all of the inner stuff we have to do and that death can kind of wake us up to something else. Yeah. And so I sat down and I wrote a solo show, and um, that was in 99. And that's when I really first wanted to, like, knew that I had a story to tell, and I really wanted to share it with the world. Um, <clears throat> kind of like my dad's class clown, you know, like that mm. autobiographical thing. Yeah. And... Um, I ended up not. I ended up doing the solo show only over three nights. I didn't do a full run of it or anything because it made my dad very uncomfortable. Really? Yeah. Just he, too revealing. Yeah, too revealing. He. Um, I mean, he ultimately said to me, like, I wouldn't stop you. I wouldn't have you change a thing about it. But um, I'm not coming. I'm not sitting in the audience. You know. And this was kind of like my big opus. And right. and here was this man who was my. Sun God, yeah. the center of my universe, and he, he, you know, he's not willing to sit there and support me through this process. And I get it. I mean, I get it now. At the time, I was just really hurt by it. Yeah. Um, but you know, but he didn't say don't do it. He just said I'm not coming. Yeah. And in my mind, because of being a, an only child and being very enmeshed with him, and he being my only parent left, and him being the most important person on the planet to me. Um, I, I did. I, I put it on a shelf and I ended up going to grad school. So <laughs> it's always a good thing to do when you don't know what to do. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'm happy I did. I went to a place called Pacifica. Uh, oh, study I know Pacifica. Jungian depth psychology. That's right. Yeah. They've got the Joseph Campbell have, library. That was part of the reason I went there was they had Joseph Campbell li archives there. Yeah. You know, not to interrupt your flow here, but the woman I... I think before I turned on the mics, I was telling you about Mill Valley, and we started yes. with this woman. She interviewed your dad, because I mentioned to her that I was going to be meeting you, and she told me that she had interviewed him, and it was an amazing, wonderful interview, and then afterwards, he said, please don't uh, publish this while I'm alive, because I don't know if it was in the same day, or he wrote to her later, or what because he had used language that he realized would get him in trouble today. Huh. Um, and uh, she said, like, like nigger specs and, uh -huh, you know, whatever. Uh -huh. And, but he was, you know, and she said he wasn't being insulting at all. He right. was just, he was using the language of the time yeah. describing his childhood. Yeah. And he was talking about growing up in this neighborhood where there were all these different people. Absolutely. And he used the words that they used. Yep. And but then his like modern sensibility kicked in, and he's like, "Oh boy, wait yeah. a minute! I said stuff." And, yeah, uh, interesting. So, so it's interesting. I mean, I was just reminded of that when you were talking about him and his sense of sort of being 
protective, which I think as a public person, you need to develop uh, mechanisms. Well, yeah, and he um, never talked about his personal life. Right. Ever. Um, He did not talk about it on stage. I mean, Class Clown was the closest that he did, and that was still... Uh, based on his experience, but he never talked about I. He never used the word I. Yeah, I I saw him once, I don't know if it was on Letterman or one of those late night shows, and he, it wasn't about I, but he was, they they asked him about his childhood, and he described his mother. Mary. And it was so beautiful. He told that story. I'm sure you've heard the story. Like something Cur- about a vocabulary. Yes. A cur- yeah, yes, exactly. I'll give famous, it a cursory glance. Yeah, it's exactly. his famous story. Yeah. About that. yeah, it was. It was really beautiful. How yes. the gentleness and, and admiration that he had for her. Yes. Uh, yeah. A very love hate relationship they had with each other. But uh, an escaping from an abuse. Like they went out the fire escape yes, or something. Yeah. 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 His father was a, as my dad would say, did not metabolize. Uh, uh, alcohol. That's exactly not, what he said. Yeah. Or ethanol or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. His dad was an angry drunk. Yeah. When he was sober, he was an amazing man. Gift of the gab, uh, award-winning speaker, salesman, charming. That's the a whole strange thing. thing. But alcohol just undid the man completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Most of my dad never knew his dad. Yeah. Because of that. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I, I broke your flow. No, 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 you're, no, no, So no. you're talking about you went to grad school at Pacifica. So, yeah, I went to grad school to Pacifica. And you studied Jungian I did. I, I, I went to their, I did their master's in counseling psychology because I I wanted to have, like, you know, I'm going to grad school. I'm spending $35,000. I guess I want something when I walk out, which is the chance, if I need to, to become an MFT. Right. Which here in California is just basically a therapist. Right. Uh, but I really had no plans on being a therapist. Um, I was good at it. We had to be an intern. We had to do it. We had right. to practice it and prove that we could do it in order to graduate. <clears throat> and I did it for a few years after school ended when I was trying to figure out how to jump into what I wanted to do. But, um, but yeah, and so I didn't... So in, in like 2000, basically, I put my personal story aside, you know. And even at Pacifica, like, there was some moments, there was some things that I, I got to write a lot about myself because you have to kind of process all the theories and everything mm-hmm. you learn when you're a psychology major yeah. um, through yourself to kind right. of clean out all the closets <laughs> a little bit, you know? Or at least open them. <laughs> at least open them, exactly, yeah. and know what's in there for sure. Um, so I was doing a lot of kind of, it was more academic, but memoir type writing then, um, but it was academic. And then when I came out of school, you know, I kind of dilly-dallied a little bit. But then it was, you know, it was pretty clear to me that I wanted to get back on stage and do some storytelling. So I mm-hmm. I kept myself under the radar so my dad wouldn't, you know, really be bothered. And I was doing small venues around town here and there'd be 50 people in the audience. And, and kind of just getting my chops, my performance chops and my writing chops and stuff like that. And then in about 2006, I... You know, I wanted to kind of do my my spiritual memoir. You know, I wanted mm. to write that story of my the awakening I had from my mother's death and all of that and go back and kind of unearth and kind of do what the solo show I'd originally written but do it in a book form. And, um, and once again, told my dad. <clears throat> and he was just, once again, oh, really? You know, and he even said to me, he said, uh, it was almost like he'd felt like because I'd written my first solo show that I'd gotten it out of my system, you know? <laughs> yeah. He was like, you know, 
people, you know, real artists move on. You know, they start with their autobiographical work and then they move on. You know, yeah. And this was in his idea, you know, because of who he was. You know, I did Class Clown, you know, and then I moved on to other bigger topics. And um, and I don't think he really realized that I hadn't had my Class Clown moment yet. Right. You know that I that even though I'd written it. There's something about it being seen and heard mm. that's as an you know as a performer yeah. is part of the equation <clears throat> you know and I used to have a lot of shame around that like what's wrong with me why why can't you just be happy not being seen and heard but you, Do you know th- is that genetic do you I, think I well I was very invisible in my household I mean I completely subsumed my own needs for my parents needs as right. a child I became an adult very early so I mean I think that part of it is that um, my dad had it too a real need to be seen and heard I mean he was doing stand up on the corner the stoops you know by the time he was 10 years old um, always performing so um, that's amazing so part of it you know, could be definitely nature and part of it, I think, is nurture. I think it's a real combination. Yeah. Um, and also just having something to say. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, and that, that was part of it, too, was that I, I wasn't getting up there just to be seen and heard. I mean, that's a part of it, sure, because you want to be witnessed. And having felt like I had no voice in my family mm-hmm. um, because of the nature of addiction um, and, and what happens in, addict, in families dealing with addiction, um, but I, I knew I had a, a survivor story. I knew my su- story would resonate with other people, whether they'd grown up in a dysfunctional family or they had a, a parent maybe that was successful and they didn't quite know how to navigate around that or they were a woman who got into a codependent or a guy who got into a real codependent relationship, you know, abusive and, you know, or anxiety disorders. I mean, I had a lot to talk about and I had a lot of fun stuff to kind of put in between it you know so um, I didn't have my class clown moment but when my dad said that to me and in 2006 my dad was um, the effects of his he was suffering from heart failure by then and you could see it in his show that he had done um, in New York, where he did the big modern man, opened with modern man. I'm a modern man. Da, 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 da. Um, he was already suffering from heart failure. So I knew, I didn't know how long he had. You know, I hoped he had 10 years. I didn't think he had 10 years. I th- hoped he had five. He ended up having two. Um, but I knew that it wasn't important enough. So I put, I put it on the shelf. I thought, you know, dad doesn't need to deal with this and in our relationship this doesn't need to be in between it you know this can wait this is you know he doesn't need to feel all of that in fact he had written a memoir uh with tony hendra who taped him through you know like 60 hours of interviews and it was sitting in the computer on the shelf and dad could have published it and made a ton of money when he was alive Mm. with that didn't publish it while he was so alive. So it was actually written, yeah. not just the tape. Yeah, by the yeah. time he was, when he died, uh, we released it the following year, and it was a hurried kind of a thing, and it really, it was 90% ready anyway. Mm-hmm. So that tells me that even he didn't want to tell his story even while he was alive. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, my wife's a psychiatrist. She has a very uh, highly developed sense of private versus public. Yes, you, know? you must, absolutely. Yeah, and it, so it's funny, like, 
this. <laughs> this, yeah. Yes, I know, right? Podcast, Part of the reason yeah. why I wasn't a therapist, too, is like, yeah. I want to do this. Yeah. I want to kind of talk about myself. Yeah. You can't. You, you can't. I mean, you really yeah. have to make that container. And there's something about, like, Richard Pryor, you know, it was just live on the Sunset Strip was just on the other night. We were watching oh. it again. You know, it's just genius. And yeah. he is just pouring himself out yeah. on the stage in every way. Joe Rogan was at that show wow. as a kid. Wow. And he said that was that was the defining moment I, of his it life. It must have been. He, he was like, this guy walks out there, no musical instrument, no all alone. Yes. And within 10 minutes, he's got everyone in this room just rolling. Yeah. You know, and it's true. And talking and about the darkest shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You the, know, revealing himself. Is there, were, were you part of this? Like, I've become sort of um, an honorary comic here in L.A. Uh-huh. Like, because our book, this book, I don't know if you know about this book. We, my wife and I co-authored a book about human sexuality and prehistory. Uh-huh. And so there's all these quirky facts about monkey balls. And, you know, the way, whatever, all this sort of, you know, primate genitalia, the design, why the penis is shaped the way it is, right. why females make more noise than males. So there's all this material that comics like. Yes. So, I mean, I've been contacted by everyone from Aziz Ansari to um, the women from Broad City. You know, like all these people are just like, uh-huh. you know, hey, let's talk because, yes. you know, there's yeah. material. Here, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. This is going to be a good conversation. <laughs> exactly. So it's great, and I love it. And and so I've sort of become part of this community. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, do you know Moshi Kasher? I know the name. Yeah. I so I, I've been on. He does a show uh, at the Upright Citizens Brigade, yes. a regular show there. And I, he's had me on three or four times. And one time I said to him, like, what? Why? Why do you keep having me back? I'm glad you do. But right. like, why? What's? He said, well. You're funny, but not too funny. <laughs> he can still be the funniest person. <laughs> exactly. In the room. I, and like I'm that. not going to try, yeah, you know, because yeah, yeah. if you're trying, then you're killing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I was just thinking, like, there's a community here that I've sort of plugged into, and it's yeah. great. Was there a community in the 70s? Like, did your dad and Richard Pryor hang out? You know, or? my dad was a loner for the most part. Uh, okay. uh, and, and my dad and Richard came up in a time when they came up in the 60s when there were no comedy clubs. Right. There were uh, folk, the folk music scene in the village, and then there were dinner theaters. Right. And then there were talk shows. And, so, then there, and then there yeah. was like the Playboy Club and the Copacabana. So this infrastructure didn't exist it for did them. It did not exist for them in that way. They had huh. to come up in, in a much more mainstream way. And Richard went. Richard made the turn before my dad did. He took he he went from straight to who he really was right. about a year or two before my dad did. Mid sixties, Vietnam. Yeah, my dad did in sixty nine. He grew his hair out so seventy he was yeah. coming out as different. So I think sixty nine, yeah. probably sixty eight for Richard, I don't know exactly. Um, so so but you know, and my dad was a loner. Um, we didn't have a lot of big parties at our house and things like that. I mean, mm. I know my parents, I, I don't know. I mean, I was a kid. You know, we'd yeah. go on the road. Right. But, you know, when my dad hit big, we'd go on the road. We were doing big colleges or theaters. So we were alone. So in L.A., once the comedy scene did start and started booming in the late 70s or mid-70s to through the 80s especially, um, I was in high school in my 20s. Not a big fan of comedy, not a comedy mm. nerd. I hung out with Mitzi Shore's kids, Peter and Polly. Peter was my age. We used to party. 
Um, that was all, that was the closest I ever got to the you comedy. Partied story. with Peter and Polly. I did. I partied oh with God. Peter and Polly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I didn't. And so I didn't know comics at all. I mean, I met Richard at a, an awards ceremony, a, one of those comedy hall of fame bullshit things. Mm. Um, didn't really know anybody and don't really know who my dad hung out with or how that worked. My dad wasn't a communal guy, hated yeah. sitting around smack talking like some comics love to do after a show or go to a diner or a deli and do that shit. Hated that. <laughs> um, so my, I didn't know anybody until my dad died and the following day they started calling me. Really? And I became they took me in. The comedy family took me in. Well, I know Louis C.K. was very... I heard this interview he did where he, he basically credited your dad. And you mentioned earlier that, that sense you have to keep moving forward. Yeah, I think that might have been the uh, New York Public Library. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> New York Public Library um, uh, tribute we did to my dad. And Louis came and... Uh, right. Told a told a beautiful story about that how he you know he had the same forty five minutes for ten years right and he was doing Chinese restaurants yep. and had plateaued yep. had, and yep. had no idea yep. had no career at all and he was listening was it fresh air it was some something in his car yeah maybe something like that I don't know what it was and your dad had that thing like you know yeah, every right. year I throw everything away and start over yep and Louis said well might as, I'm going to try that yep. and his career just launched at that moment yeah 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 that's amazing yeah. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a ballsy thing to do, though, you know. It's it is. Um, but like you were saying dad, about Pacifica, it's it's the only way is to go forward and go into your stuff deeper and deeper. Yeah, I mean, I think if you hang on to what works, that's your ego, right? Being comfortable, right? And and yet, but it gets stale. It becomes a dead thing to you. Yeah, you know. I mean, it's like. I mean, you know, if you think about metaphor and symbols and all of that, you know, if you don't keep them, if they're not, if they're not alive to you, they don't have any power, um, yeah. you know, so it's the same thing with your work. And for my dad, my dad was just extremely disciplined and prolific. He wrote everything down. He wrote all the time. He worked on his material all the time. Um, I have Ziploc baggies full of handwritten notes in different categories. Really? Um, and then I have tons of stuff in a computer that's just uh, those things more co collated into documents but aren't worked into things. I probably have three hours, three HBO shows worth of stuff in a computer that I don't, I don't know what I'll ever do with because I'm not going to do what he did with it you yeah. know I, I wouldn't dare I don't have the arrogance um, and, unless you make it a creative exercise and say okay I took this and I made this out of it in some sort of very transparent way but yeah. um, uh, but my dad was very prolific and very disciplined his mind never shut off so for him it was easy in some ways to move on yeah and what was so frustrating about for him which I've learned more and more as I've studied his life, writing my own life, studied his own life to kind of understand my life and find parallels in it and stuff. What was so frustrating for him in the 60s was that even though he had a few set bits that were very successful, Hippy Dippy Weatherman was the famous one, um, the Indian Sergeant was another one that was famous, um, and a couple of others. He would. He was always writing new stuff and wanting to move forward, and he would do these little talk show, TV show things, and he would come on and he would have a new bit to do, 
and they didn't want that. They wanted the tried oh, really? and true. Oh, no, just uh, do the Indian sergeant thing again. Right. So he would do it again, but he would find a different, okay, well, now they're in a, a spaceship, or, you know, he would, like, try to, and he just fucking knew he was just fucking flogging a dead horse, and yeah. he was feeling dead inside as, a, as an artist because of it. So that was part of the reason that he made the leap into this transformation that he did was that he was never going to get a chance to move on unless he made some and and that was his first real letting go he let go of all that stuff mm-hmm. and that's where you see that FMAM album is where he's really telling his audience here's the AM George and here's the new FM George and mm. you're going to I'm going to walk you through the transformation right. I'm going to hold your hand right now and you'll see that it's safe to come with me I'm still the same guy I'm just freer on this other side of the album he was very smart about that kind of stuff yeah. very conscious about his his evolutions and his transformations which I am too I'm very over, you know, I'm always writing. It's what I write about. It's what I talk about. It's what my whole memoir is about. Is all of my little iterations and tr- evolutionary leaps in my life. You know. Yeah. Totally get that from my dad. Well, what's the name of your book? It's called A Carlin Home Companion. A Carlin Home Companion. <laughs> yeah. Anything that takes the piss out of the Prairie Home Companion is all right by me. And you know, I'm okay with Prairie Home Companion, but I just loved, it, it came to me in a nap. I was like dozing off for a nap, and it was like, I, I was starting to write my solo show, my newest solo show at the time, which is where I first used the title, and it just came to me, and it was like, I have to use this, because it's just the dichotomy of the two lives, yeah. of the two worlds I'm creating here. It's just too much fun. Well, if, I, if anyone out there listening to this ever is uh, interested in torturing me... <laughs> Um, you don't need to play the heavy metal music. Just a little Garrison Keillor? Just, you know, un- loud Garrison Keillor that I can't stop Especially listening to. Especially when he to. sings. Oh, and, and you get the, like, the you know, the family band with the banjo uh-huh. and the kids singing along. Or the Detective along. Noir story, the little radio show. Oh, man, I can't take it. I just can't take it. Now I know. That's why I live in Spain. It's like, The beauty of living in another culture is it's so easy to ignore what's going on. Oh, it's so, yeah. It's I, just great. Yeah, we go to Scotland every year just so we can pretend like we don't know where America is <laughs> for like 10 days. Yeah. Yeah, but see, they're, they're still speaking English, That's more true. or less. That is true. Yeah, we, still, we can still get around. Yeah. But in Spain, it's like I can be in a restaurant full of people talking, and unless I'm really paying attention, I can't really understand what anyone's yeah. saying, right? Wow. If I focus, I'll understand. Yeah. But in an American restaurant, I hear every stupid conversation yeah. that's going on around me. It yeah. drives me nuts. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So do you feel a sense of um, expiation? Have you? Do you feel cleansed in some sense, having delivered this baby? Yeah, I do. Uh, not in the way that I thought I would, or I think that people assume. You know, I, mm. I, I've been telling my stories now on and off since I got out of grad school. So like since 2000, so for like 10 years I've been telling them. So I've been being seen and heard and telling them and stuff. But to get it all in one place and to and to be able to say, okay, this is this is the story of my life with my family, with my father. Here's the dance we did. Um, I mean, the dance continues, of course, in some ways. But um, here it all is. 
and it's all in one place, and I don't have to carry it around anymore. Right. I don't have to keep feeding that creative dream that's on my shoulder. When will yeah. it get done? How right. do I do it? What you know? This is because there's the creative part of your life, and then there's this strategic thing too. You know, mm. how do I get? How do I get enough buzz in my life? I mean, it's like it's, it's, it sounds so egoy, but it is. It's like how do you get enough attention? So that a real publisher pays attention, and that you know you have enough, and that but they'll leave you alone. You know, it's like how do you how do you maneuver this career thing? You know, you're making it up always as you go along. Yeah, you don't know. There's no rule book anywhere, and um, yeah. So yeah, I um, I'm just I, I'm thrilled that it's done, that it's out there, that it's being received in really beautiful ways. Um, every once in a while, I read the one stars on Amazon who talk about it. who wants to fucking read a story about a rich spoiled girl. It's like if that's what you got out of my book, then you are the shallowest person uh, on earth. You read the Amazon reviews. I don't. Um, I don't. My publisher said read the five stars if you want, and then every once in a while, read a nice one star just to make yourself laugh because it's yeah. actually taught me to be really humble. Um, but it's but it's but I get emails every day from lovely people who are readers and stuff. But what I'm dealing with now. Since the book tour has been over, well, I'm still in it. I mean, you know, I'm still doing a little Talking bit. Talking to the likes of me. Still, yeah, still doing stuff like this, and will, and will for the year to come because the paperback will come out next fall. But, um, um, but just starting to come to grips with that it's, it's not on my to-do list anymore. Yeah. I can really relate to that because I've been working on the follow-up to Sex at Dawn for uh -huh. five years. Uh -huh. And I just turned it in last week. Wow. So I still have the you know editing process yes. and all that. Yes. But when you were describing carrying something around on your shoulder, that's how I felt. I've been carrying around a big bag of research. Yep. And, and, and maybe you can relate to this as well. There's... You're talking about the reviews. There's a sense, one of the things I've learned, uh, having written a book, and, and you know, I, w I didn't grow up as a public person at all. Right. The opposite, right? Yes. I was teaching English to doctors in Spain, and I had done this, um, my dissertation on human sexual behavior in prehistory. Totally a fluke. It was because Bill Clinton got the blowjob, and I got confused. Like, why is he getting so much shit for this? I don't. Why are people so? And so I started reading, and I was living with a stripper at the time, wow. and and working for this organ, this nonprofit that was all women and me. Right? It was right. like fifty women and me, and then my girlfriend and all her stripper friends in San Francisco. So I'm surrounded by all these smart, like very articulate, uh, self-aware women, and so I was reading this stuff. Evolutionary psychology, which basically says women trade sexual fidelity for, you know, provisions from right, men. Right, safety and security. Right. Yes. And so I was like, oh, that makes sense. That explains everything. And I start talking to women and they all say, that's bullshit. Right. That's bullshit. And so then I went and looked up the original research, you know, like, well, they say it's bullshit. No, that's not how women experience things. And then I found, like, bonobos. Right. Do you know about bonobos? Yes. So I found bonobos, and then I looked into the anthropology, and it's like, wait a minute. There are all these societies where nobody gives a shit whose baby is whose. And, yes. and people, uh, jealousy is discouraged and minimized and considered pathetic and ridiculous. And they're sharing all the food. The guy can't just share the, his kill with his wife and his kids. This is all bullshit. Yeah. So I got really excited about it, and I wrote this book. 
book and it became a bestseller. And suddenly I'm on TV and I'm giving TED Talks and I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm getting emails from strangers. Uh-huh. And so I sort of launched into the world you grew up in. Right. And so I've had to learn a lot in the last few years. And one of the things I learned is that people have a relationship with your work. Yes. That really doesn't involve you. Truly. So someone writing a bad review of your book on Amazon, that's about them. Uh, Completely. Reacting to your book based on what's going on in their life. And for you to take it as a commentary on you. Yes. Is in a weird way intrusive. Well, and this is what I'm learning. Like I too, even though I was famous adjacent in my life, that's what I call it. Right. Um, since my dad died, I've had more of a public life and had to learn this. But really with the book, yes, you suddenly get a real <laughs> understanding of what projection really means. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that, like, yeah. I had my friend Sarah Benincasa, the night before my book was published, on September 14th, I'm laying in bed and I start to panic. <laughs> what the fuck have I done? Yeah. What the fuck have I done? This is insane. My whole life is laid out. All of this stuff is laid out. And um, so I wrote her a thing. I'm like, I'm panicking. And she'd written a memoir about having agoraphobia. It's called Agoraphabulous. <laughs> That's a good title. It's a great title. And she's funny and wonderful. And she wrote me this amazing email. And she said, she goes, only share this with writers because most people will think we're totally arrogant fucks otherwise. But she said in it, she said, you know, the eye on the page in your book is not you. It's mm-hmm. a character. Yeah, it's no a hippy dippy weatherman. Yeah. That wasn't him, it's right? A it's char- a character. Exactly. No matter what, yeah. it's a character. It's a construction. Yeah. And you have to keep and remember that. And that every encounter you have with everyone, every, some they have constructed an idea. And I've been getting this for you know seven years with my dad. I mean, encountering my dad's fans. Yeah. I mean, I am a construction. Uh, you know, and most of the time, and what I got right away when he died was that my role was to just receive their love for him. Right. And I was a receptacle, and I was totally willing to do that, and still am. Um, but yeah, it's it's a really weird thing that <laughs> happens when you become a public person, yeah. you know. And then and then social media exploding the last seven years too. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can overhear conversations about you, yes, you know, among yes. people who don't know you're even yes. there or it's that fa- you're even real. You at, know? Yeah, and at the beginning, I wanted to correct everybody. First, I wanted to correct everyone <laughs> yeah. about my dad because right. people have got really right. fucked up ideas about who my dad was or what he stood for. Right. And then they make up these fake memes about him and they twist his words. And I was like the George Carlin police for a few years and then right. I got exhausted with that. And But yeah, I'm learning. And I think this is part of also being... Uh, maybe it happens earlier for people, but it's happening for me in my 50s. And my mother told me in her 50s it happened to her. I'm learning to not take anything personally. Right. And that it's really none of my business. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking yesterday. I was with Joe and Duncan, I think I told you, doing this. Joe's podcasts are like three hours. I know, I These know. epic things. And we were talking about that. Joe, Duncan was saying... He was talking about, Duncan's very into uh, Buddhism and he spends a lot of time with Ram Das out in Hawaii and does all these retreats and stuff. And he was talking about some spiritual guru somewhere. And the description of him was that, like, he, he was almost transparent. Like, anything, you could say anything to him and it just, like, 
passed right through and right. didn't catch yep. on any ego. Right. There was no, no hooks. There are no hooks. And yeah. it's like, you, you can say whatever you want. It doesn't matter. I know who I am. Yeah. I know what I am. And, and like people have a, a thing like, because our book is, a lot of people feel very liberated by it because essentially what it says is, you know, human beings are an ape and we are a promiscuous ape by right. nature. This right. is the way we evolved. This is the way bonobos are. This is the way chimps are. This is why we have testicles outside our bodies and why women, you know, make noise when they're having sex. Um, and so people read this and they're like, oh my gosh, so I'm not sick. Right. Oh, you know, my mother wasn't sick. My father wasn't sick. Yeah. Like, they're victims. We're all victims of a fucked up society that's telling us we're something that we're not. Yep. And so there's this conflict. And so there's all this guilt and shame. So people get very passionate. Mm. And... You know, it's like you were saying, being a receptacle or sort of standing outside of a relationship that people have with a family member or a work of art or something yes. you've done, it's between them. Yeah. And I, I haven't read the book in 10 years. Yeah. I, I yeah. barely remember that section, you know? But, yeah. So it's weird. It's, it's and, weird. And it is weird because we pour so much of ourselves into it while we're doing it. I mean, it, I mean, certainly with a memoir, you really yeah. <laughs> pour your, so in some ways, I mean, it is me in my life. And yet I had to decide what goes in, what doesn't go in because it fits the narrative of my relationship with my dad and the dance I did with him. And that's really what right. this book is about right. is that part of my life. You know, I have so many other parts that, Part I, you know, I touch on them in the book, but you know they're not completely unearthed. And um, yeah, it, it is learning that even though it's sourced from this deep place, and there's this, you know, it's a thing like when you're writing. I don't know if you've had this experience, but one of the things I love about writing is that creative problem solving in the moment. It's like how do you synthesize material, whether it's external research or internal research. How do you synthesize and then how do you pour it into a sentence and then how do you make it fit into this arc that you're creating? Because a book is a very long arc as opposed to a 12 or 15 page essay. Yeah. You know? And and that, exp I love that process. Like that brings yeah. me bliss doing that. Do you feel, when you're writing, do you feel that you're performing? A little bit, because there is an audience I am writing for. Right. There's a, there's definitely I'm I'm communicating to communicate. And and your speak for me, I feel I do feel performance uh, in a sense because I'm trying to keep a consistent voice. Yes, that's important. It is. It's, You're in a bad mood today, a good mood tomorrow, but your voice and on the page has to be the same. that's why an editor is such an important yeah. thing. I mean, yeah. I had a great editor for my book, yeah. and she really not only helped me stay consistent, but um, helped me make my tone and my voice even clearer. Mm. You know, like really, like. Yes, that's you. And if you you know do this, you'll really sing on the page. Like this right. is really who you know. This is this is even a, a finer clarity going on. Fidelity. Isn't that a cool thing? When yeah. Like someone else can help you tune into it's, your own station. It's incredible. Yeah. And I think it's the important part of. I mean, I think it's no matter what we do, we're in communication arts. You know, whether you're a stand-up or a writer or yeah. whatever. You're not doing this in a vacuum. We're all in relationship with each other here. Yeah. So there's going to be an eye or an ear 
receiving this thing and you do have to care about the impact you're having. Is it the impact you want to have? Right. So, you know, I took a great leadership course. Um, I, I became certified as a coach and stuff like that and took this great leadership course and it was all about front of the room stuff. And the, the, one of the most incredible things I learned was that receiving feedback is a neutral thing because it's really information to, to help you figure out if you're having the impact you want to have on your audience. Mm. And when I learned it, was, I used to be so scared about feedback. Oh, I'm going to be crushed if they don't like it. Oh, it's going to represent who I am. And completely could not separate myself from any of that stuff. And that really taught me how to start separating that out. Like, oh, it's neutral. And if yeah. it's not the impact I want to have, then I, it's my job to change it. And you'll never know without the feedback. Absolutely, yeah. 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 And that's why comics go to open mics. You right. know, That's why they go and they work their material out. Right. That's why comics are so frustrated with people with phones recording their stuff at clubs because you know they're working out these this new 10 or 20 minutes and it's clunky and it's horrible and it's wrong. <laughs> and they're going to step over lines that are inappropriate. Right. And they're going to learn that and they're going right. to know where the line is and all you know, where they can take the audience and where they can't and all of that you need you need a little bit of a you know kind of a laboratory to do that in and with comedians yeah. unfortunately you have to do it on a stage luckily when you're writing a book you, you've got read I have reader friends I had an editor you know you have people listening into that way so although I I envy uh, musicians and, and comedians that immediacy of response oh yeah agreed that's why I perform oh, that right. is why I perform right. I don't I don't need it a lot I mean some people need it comics need it yeah a lot like five nights a week they need that <laughs> but um, but there is nothing like getting a laugh. Do you think? I mean, would I, I was listening to Mark Maron's podcast recently. He was talking with uh, Flea, a bass player uh -huh. from Red Hot Chili uh -huh. Peppers, sure. and some and another bass player. I don't remember who it was, but um, he he said, "Okay, so so why why did you guys get into music? You know, and, and Flea's father was a jazz musician. Uh -huh. So I guess it was why did you pick up the bass and get into rock and roll and all that? And both of them said, "Pussy." Pussy, you know, I was like 12. I knew I was going to be chasing pussy, and this was going to help me. And I thought, like, because then in the that could go in your book. Well, well, <laughs> yeah, in the context of my book, yeah, our our book, which is that you know we've created this false scarcity of sexual pleasure and satisfaction. Uh -huh. Um, as a way to sort of keep the the wheels of commerce turning and yes. they use sex to sell things wow. that you know and so I was thinking like well in a hunter-gatherer context where sex is free and easy and available and you know would there be rock and roll you know that's what a great question right and like is there enough creative tension well that's it and yeah. and you mentioned like comics need it five nights a week and and you know it's true the comics i know they'll all be the first to tell you like we're all crazy yeah. you know we're all there's some weird thing yeah i need to get on stage and talk about this to people so if if everybody was sort of healthy yeah you know would be psychologically right would there be comedians would there be rock and roll what well would, i yeah it's a great question i mean you think about you know, was there creative? Is there creative expression in art in those societies? There's definitely music, right? And there's dance, and, and there's, there's picture, there's picture, cave right. paintings, yeah, yeah. No, there's religious there's some, ritual, right? Exactly. Then yeah. it starts to pour into something of that, the mystery thing, you know. But rock and roll is very sex based, yeah. Um, 
You know rock and roll means to fuck? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The yeah. first DJs didn't know that. Yeah. So we're going to rock around the clock tonight? All, like, oh, I'll bet we are. All the black men who wrote the music. They knew it. Exactly what the hell <laughs> we were talking it. about. Well, we talk it's about It's all this. euphemism. Yeah. Yeah. In, you, re, you listen to any of those songs. It's all euphemism. Jelly Roll Morton? Yeah. Jelly Roll? You know what a Jelly Roll is, right? No. Pussy. Oh. And his nickname, his name was Jelly Roll Morton. Oh, there you go. And uh, funk comes from a word, mafunke, a uh, West African word, which means positive sweat. <laughs> <laughs> so not the sweat from work. Wow, I love that. Yeah. And what was the other one? Oh, jazz and jizz come yes. from the same root. Yeah. Yeah. These are all from an essay called Hear That Long Snake Moan by... Mm. Um, Michael Ventura. Oh, love You know him? him? Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. He used to write for the LA Weekly yeah, for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, now he writes Letters for the Letters at Austin. 4 a.m. was yeah, a great book. Yeah, 3 a.m. 3 a.m., yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. 4 a.m., 3 a.m. The sequel will be 4 a.m., Yes, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's I, great. It is a good question, though, about rock and roll and... I mean, yeah, I think it is maybe a pouring out of our sexual energy in a way that's... okay, that's not... Yeah. You know, that it's, I mean, it literally is a pouring out of our sexuality. Well, and I don't know yeah. if we did have all of that free sex. Um, you, had, you need the dam, right? You need the yeah. reservoir to, to turn the turbines. Yeah. If it were just a free-flowing river, it would be a beautiful river, but you wouldn't have that energy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I wonder, too, like I think about tribal dance or trance dance and that kind of communal dancing that goes on throughout human history you know there's something in that where you are I think channeling Eros on some level into it yeah um and that maybe that does help just stabilize things you know so that you're not fucking whacking off <laughs> one times a day hey there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong with it but you know maybe there's other things we need to get done I mean maybe that's what happened but you know like oh shit now we gotta go milk the cows we can't whack off 20 times a day anymore <laughs> alright we gotta find some other way to, to channel this energy well that's what Freud said in civilization and it's right. discontent Supplement, sublimated yeah, yeah. yeah so did you go to Pacifica because of a love for Carl Jung or just because it's a beautiful place Campbell. Uh, Joseph Campbell yeah thing. and yeah. I, you know mythology and archetypes I wanted to understand the human psyche on a deep level and mm. and the journey of what I learned is called individuation mm. but that journey that Jung talks about where we are at a certain age able to look at the roles we play in our family and our culture mm. and make a decision to not play those roles right. and to, to live from a deeper place that for me was really important and I wanted to be able to do my work in such a way, whether it was writing or performing, but especially using stagecraft, because I'm fascinated by stagecraft, and especially live theater, um, in a way that could make it transformational and archetypal on some level. Um, and 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 transformational. I didn't, you know, I didn't want to do a solo show just to get a sitcom deal, which is a lot of people were doing in LA right. in the 90s. Um, I wanted I want my work to be something bigger than that. Like theater can be. Like theater what like the whole point of theater was from right. day one. Right. Um there's something about that that I wanted to do. And I didn't know if I wanted to be like 
a Tony Robbins or a Marion Williamson. Uh, you know, I, I you know I remember in my twenties going to see Marion Williamson. If you don't know who she is, she's a she studied this thing called A Course in Miracles, which is very, you know, someone channeled it and all that kind of stuff. Uh, whatever. It's got a lot of perennial wisdom stuff in it, yeah. which, you know, is basically the basic wisdom of the ages. Um, and she would do these evenings where she would lead a meditation. She would do a little kind of a personal storytelling that had some sort of thing in it. Um, and uh, and then there would be a little bit of a sharing or something. And it was just this wonderful kind of neutral, spiritual kind of communal experience and I love communal experience that way and so I never I didn't really know like do I want to be a preacher you know or I don't want to or do I want to be a performance artist and I kind of want to be both (laughs) you know and so that's why I love Jung and Joseph Campbell and all this stuff because it, it really is about being both that the numinous experience the sacred the communal the archetypal the collective unconscious it's all stuff that connects us and it connects us through symbol and metaphor and myth and story so you know if you enter that realm somewhere you're going to get all that juicy stuff yeah in a communal setting and uh and, and so i love that kind of stuff um and i and i wanted to study there because i knew that was the closest i was going to get to be able to you know kind of learn all that stuff but also learn the individual psychology and i healed a lot of my own shit there too you know so that was that was a, ha- a happy thing I mentioned uh, my friend Stanley earlier, I think before we turned on the mics. He was a friend of Joseph Campbell's. Wow. In fact, when Campbell died, you know, he was going to Lucas Ranch every year and yep. giving a talk to the yep. people there. Yep. Um, Stanley picked up and he was the, you know, went up there to the ranch afterward to talk about mythology because that was nice. Stanley's, Stanley Krippner. You may have come I across him at name. some point. Huh. Yeah, he's published a bunch of books, 20-some books on mythology, dream interpretation, oh, the yeah, paranormal. Yeah, should have definitely yeah. run into him. He's a very God interesting knows. guy. He's in his 80s, 83. I just did a podcast with him a few days ago. Wow. Yeah, he's a wonderful I'll guy. Listen to that. So you're talking about performance art. Uh, my closest... Um, encounter with performance art was in Alaska. I was up there working in a salmon cannery in the early 80s and I met this uh, group of people. It was a woman uh, and two men. They were all from the Chicago Art Institute. They Uh had driven to Alaska on a whim in a Pinto. (laughs) She was a painter and the two guys were performance artists, right? And she was engaged to one of them. And by the time they got to Alaska, she and her fiance were having all sorts of issues, and the other guy was in love with her. Of course. And she was just completely sick of these guys. Oh my God. Because they were a handful, both of them. I mean, I remember. And so I sort of became friends with them, and then, you know, both the guys are telling me their side of the story, and like, I don't get a vote. I don't care who yes. she's fucking here. Yes. And then. The fiance took off and went and worked on a boat, on a floating cannery somewhere. And then the other guy thought he was going to, like, that was his big chance, but she was she having none, none of it. it. Right. And then she and I ended up getting together, <laughs> of course, right? Of course, right. Because I was, like, not pushing, you know? I was, yes. I was like, I'm here if you need me, but I'm not pushing. So we're sleeping in my tent one night, sound asleep, and uh, I hear Chris. Chris, wake up, Chris. And it was her fiance, 
who had like shown up in the middle of the night. I thought he was off on some ship. Uh, is Catherine with you? And all I could think was, I need time. I just need to wake up. I need another 15 seconds to like be able to think, right? So I said, uh, wait a minute, I'll check, right? I'm in a tent. <laughs> I'll check. <laughs> Let me just look around. Hey, what's your name? Uh, oh, wait, I found her over here. <laughs> is, that, is that you? Uh, anyway, so she goes out, and they go off and have their thing. And... Um, and then the next day, so the next day I get up and I go to work in the cannery. I'm wearing these big rubber uh-huh. rain boots, you know, yep. gutting fish all day. I come back at the end of the day and he had made a crucifix and planted it in front of my tent and took my hiking boots and put them on and then burned it. So I come back. So this is what happens when you sleep with a performance artist girlfriend. Uh, obviously. <laughs> It's gonna, it's gonna be big and archetypal. It's be, exactly, smoldering rubber and leather globs, and I was like, "Wow!" If he had an iPhone, he would have taped the whole thing. Yeah, and it would be an installation somewhere. It, or something. it was. It was his installation. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I always think of that when, when someone talks about performance art. Like, wow, that's that's funny. Yeah, those were the days in the '80s. So you're talking about a TV show. I pitched a TV show here. Uh, in LA, of course, you know, you when a book hits, suddenly, you know, <laughs> yes. all the sharks are in there. Yes. And so I was talking with this um, producer, uh, director, producer, whatever, and uh, he said, so we're talking about the, what the show was going to be. Essentially, it was going to be like, like, you know, Anthony Bourdain show? Sure. So I was going to be the Anthony Bourdain of sex. Uh-huh. So everybody told me, you're the Anthony Bourdain of sex. Like, middle-aged, you yes. know, it's a bit of a history, yes. some drug use, right? no bullshit, yep. kind of telling it like it is. But I'm going to go around the world talking about sex instead of food. Right. I still think it's a great idea. It is, actually. But they're all scared of it. Of course. So everybody was excited at the level of the agents and the production companies. But when it came to putting money on the table, like, yeah. well, Toyota's not going to want to, you know, sell a car after you've been talking about goat fuckers. <laughs> so, <laughs> non-judgmentally. Non-judgmentally. Which was my, that was my non-negotiable. For this sure. will not For be sure. judgmental. I mean, uh, yeah. Anyway, so, I'm talking to this guy and he says, okay, so what's going to be your persona? <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, who are you going to be? Oh, my God. And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to be me. And he said, no, no. I, no, you can't be you, you. Yeah. He, he said, well, what do you mean you? What, what do you mean you? What are you? Are you funny? Are you? I said, well, I'm just, I'm going to be authentic. And he said, oh, I get it. You're going to be authentic with air quotes. <laughs> wow. And that sums like, up Hollywood right there. That's LA. You. Exactly. There it is. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, listen, he said, you need to be the same every day. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter if you're getting divorced or you're tired or you had too much to drink last night. You need to pick a character right. that you're going to play on TV who's a version of you, and it always has to be the same. So if you're going to be funny, you've got to be funny every week. If you're going to be, you know, whatever. So, yeah, no, you're going to be authentic. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. So luckily my, my television career didn't take off. Wow. Yeah, we're, uh, yeah, great town. <laughs> well, you grew up in it. It's, I, I got did. My, I, can we take a pee break? Oh, we can, yeah, definitely. All right, Hold let on. me just, I just.
And we are back after a fruitful pee break. Oh, it was lovely, I must tell you. Was it? Good. No, it's nothing, nothing Good. worse. Did you, did you periscope it? Do you know about periscope? I do know about periscope. I um, did not periscope it. <laughs> <laughs> you did not periscope. I, I haven't used it yet. I, I, people are encouraging me to periscope things. We, yeah. we could periscope this. We 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 could. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I the periscoping thing. I, I mean, it's like if I was fifteen, I would be so excited right now because. When I was 15, 16, 17, we wanted all this tech, you know, we wanted to be making mm. movies all the time. We wanted right. to, you know, there was like nothing, we had no yeah. resource, I mean, we had a lot of ton of resources and stuff, but, you know, it was like, you know, making a movie was making a movie back then, you know, right. you had film and everything, and yeah. then one of my friend's dad, uh, his dad was Tony Bill, director, actor, he had a beta cam, which was like a really, you know, and he had one of the early ones, yeah. and we would like take it out of his office and like spend <laughs> and do like bad skits on the weekends in my bedroom oh, which was boy. really really fun but now kids can do that with their phones yeah it's crazy yeah. uh so yeah the periscoping thing it's like i i like i have a fantasy where like my husband and i do cross-country tr travel or something like that and we you know, we do three periscopes a day or something. Like you, like you make it into something. You know, like some structure. Yeah, things like that need to have structure for me. Yeah. You know, otherwise it's like, you know, I'm periscoping my walk. Well, do you think? I mean, you grew up in L.A. I've got family in L.A. since I was young, so I've been coming here frequently. Uh -huh. And now my cousins, who all like two of my one of my cousins teaches at Pally High, uh -huh. where you probably went. I, I went to Crossroads. I went to private school. Oh, I had I'm a sorry. lot of friends oh, at Pally. Okay, a ton of friends at Pally. Uh, they live in Topanga uh -huh. and Malibu, uh -huh. and you know, so I, I West Side groovy scene. See that whole scene a yep. lot. And just this morning, I, we're staying in Topanga, and this morning I stopped in a cafe and there are all these kids there and they're doing their kid thing. Yep. To kids who grow up in that realm, that rich, successful parents, yes. you know, elite. Yes, realm, yes. Um, from my perspective, they tend to be assholes. Some of them are, yes. They are so, they think they're so fucking cool. Yeah. They're so like, you know, everyone thinks life is a movie being made about them. Yeah. And especially these days. Yeah. Even more so. I mean, right. teenagers so are narcissistic. They're already. all assholes anyway. Right. Yeah. But I mean, so what I'm, what I'm getting at is the technology we're talking about, periscopes and phones yeah. and everything. Is that moving the whole world closer to L.A.? You know what I mean? Like, the whole world is becoming L.A. now? Maybe. Maybe, yeah. Although, you know, I, you know, you see people using that technology for really interesting things, too. Like that guy who does Humans of New York. Oh, love that. Right? Yeah. I mean, so you see that. You yeah. know, I think... Yeah, I mean, you That's know. beautiful. I, I think, yeah. you know, there's a certain percentage of assholes, always. Right. Certain percentage of narcissists, certain percentage of people who are very thoughtful and deep. You know, and, and, and I, I think this stuff kind of, you know, I mean, I know that this technology and social media kind of, Asks you to be narcissistic. It's a, that's what I'm getting. You at. know, yeah. it's, it's more of it enables. It does. It that. enables your yeah. narcissism. But I think also now that we've had Facebook now for eight years and Twitter for six or whatever it is, I, and I look at like when I got on and started doing all this stuff and the iPhones, you know, and all of that. Um, 
I think at first we were all enamored with it and it's all shiny new objects. And yes, I mean, my dad was a person who always had to have the newest shiny new objects. Oh, really? He had an early iPhone. He had the early Apple computers. Always, he got a new computer every year. All he ever did was, it, you know, was write you know, word documents on it. It's not like he was cutting movies. Yeah. Gee, Dad, you really need that tower with all that processing. He loved that shit. Um, That's funny. I would never have thought that. He I seems know, my, like a, everyone thought my dad was a lot. Yeah. Oh no, yeah. no, 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 no. And um, loved new stuff. And I mean, I, I was always the hand-me-down of all the great every new electronics my dad would get. All, every you know the Sony. My, we had a reel-to-reel Sony video camera stuff. So anyway, but um, but I think now as a culture and as a people after seven years of this we're seeing the downside of it too Hmm. you know and people are now having I mean I've been talking for five years about vacations away from digital realm and technology people are now really doing it and having real conversations and really get that there's a huge benefit if you can turn your phone off for seven days and, and get you know you know. I'm flying to Bangkok in a week. Yeah. And I plan to take a break from social yeah. media and, you know, answering emails. And yeah. Like, and, hey, and I generally an do, like, this time of year, I'm off of social media right now between, yeah. like, the solstice and the new year. Oh, nice. I try to unplug those last two weeks of, of the year. I always do it. Even throughout the year, I'll take a five-day, seven-day break from it. Um, I was just reading an article about the importance of being in nature. Even oh. if it's just a being near a park. Nature deficit park. disorder is a real thing. Yes, yeah. and, and and just they, you know, uh, when they bring people back into nature after three days, all of their rhythms are back. All of their, you know, and people who live closer to a park, their blood pressure is naturally lower. I mean, all this people kind of stuff. in a hospital. I I, I used to study yes, this who stuff. Look at, look out the window at, at trees. trees. Heal faster. Heal faster. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, because yeah. we are nature. Yeah. And this is not natural. These yeah. devices are not natural. Yeah. Um, they put you into a, f- into a weird, abstract yeah. self. You know what my new book's called? Mm. Civilized to Death. Wow. So you're talking my language, oh, sister. I love this. I can't wait to yeah, have, well, have oh, you maybe, on my podcast well, to talk yeah. about this. <laughs> well, first get me on to talk about monkey balls. Yes. And, and then okay, we'll yeah, move yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Because there's yeah, a lot of material yeah, there. I want to read this book of yours. And, and I'm very amazing. I'm very honed at this point. You yes, know? I like, bet you oh, are. Yes. five years. Oh, there's a hummingbird outside oh, the window. Very speaking nice. Speaking of nature, hi. Yeah, hi, nature. This is my little nature patch back here. Yeah, it's nice. Nice to have a yard. Yep. We uh, in Barcelona, we have a big terrace, you know, and we grow weed and jasmine and you know all this beautiful cacti and nice. chili peppers, and yep. it's just it's so nice to have all that life. And we had three cats, so there yep. were cats going all over the yep. place. I really miss that. I miss being surrounded by life, which it's, is why Portland's nice. Everything's alive. Absolutely, up there. absolutely, it's essential. And yeah, and the thing about LA is, you know. You do have it. I mean, the Pacific Ocean is an amazing experience to go down to that water and be with her. I call it a her. I don't know if she is, but she is to me. And then you've got the Santa Monica Mountains two hours away. You've got the bigger mountains. You've got the desert two hours away. Joshua Tree's great. Joshua Tree. Idlewild is amazing. Big Bear, all that stuff. Um, But you have to get in your car to do it. And you do have to make yourself do it. Um, But it's essential for my mental health. I mean, I'll get in my car and just do my Malibu drive if I need to like work on something if I'm processing. Do you ever consider Topanga? You know, the problem about living there though is that 
Um, a, it's expensive. There's mm -hmm. no place to buy anymore. That's um, true. We, mm -hmm. we looked 20 years ago when we were looking. Um, but you're very isolated up there, and it's very yeah. small-townish. It is. Everybody knows everybody Everybody knows business. your business. That's I like true. the anonymity yeah. of being in the city here. I like where I live in the city. I live by LAX, which is very un But it's LA not noisy. Or at least today. It's and did noisy. the planes come it's over? It's not noisy. They're landing on this side. I was surprised. I came by if earlier. You go to Playa, where they're taking off, yeah, they that's hear noisy. But, but they're really close. Yeah, they're right there. I, I was, a mile and a half. I went to get a coffee, and it's like, whoa, the airport's oh, right big here. Big are landing right there. But I'm not hearing anything. Yeah, no, you don't hear it. Very cool. Yeah. 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 yeah but it's, uh, I like this part of L.A. because it's very un-West Side pretentious. People here are really neighborly, mm. um, but you're anonymous enough here. And uh, I go back to the, I go back to Brentwood and the Palisades, and I drive around there, and I think these people really do think they're the center of the universe. <laughs> I mean, and as a teenager, yeah. I knew I was the center of a universe, yeah. and we were being told we were, and it was we were obnoxious. Oh yeah. my God! If you yeah. read that chapter in my book, you will shake your head at me and say, "Ah, oh, Kelly, really?" Did you do an audio book? I did. Did you narrate it yourself? I did, oh, yeah. Good. Got to do yeah. it at Village Studios, which is a huge rock and roll studio here on the west side. Yeah. Every room is legendary. Really? It was a profound That's experience cool. That's for, great. A, for a hippie girl. <laughs> <laughs> I have a friend who was a studio musician for years here in L.A. He used to, he used to tell me all these stories. He told me, for example, that Rod Stewart Everywhere he went, he had a Sharpie, and he drew a penis. He would draw penises everywhere. I don't know if that's why they called him Rod. I don't know what the joke, oh, but apparently did. Rod Stewart was like a real sort of um, vulgar guy, or is. Tonight, tonight, <laughs> yeah. it's gonna be alright. Maggie May ruined oh, yeah. him forever. Oh, exactly. It's funny, you listen to rock and roll songs, and like Sweet Sixteen, you know, like there's stuff that'll get you thrown in prison. Oh, that they're singing about, and we're all singing along. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. Or like rapey stuff, like you know the Sting song, "Every Breath You Take." Do you know the story about that that song? Uh, I don't he, he was I reading know. Orwell. Oh. And oh. he woke up from a dream with the phrase, I'll be watching you every step you take, I'll be watching oh. you every move you make. Oh. And the song came out of that. And then when it became this love song. A love song. It's creepy. He it's was stalker. Like, he was like, that's not a love song. It's a stalker yeah. song. Yeah, I mean, you, you, most love songs are horrible codependent. Yeah. Like, I, when I think about how, what I learned about sex and relationships through popular music, no wonder I became the most codependent, mm. <laughs> Well, you know. Yeah, just, and movies and oh, TV, yes. the whole message is sick. Horrible. We make a big deal of this in Sex at Dawn. We talk about, uh, we, we talk about every breath you take and also, um, what's that? Oh, when a man loves a woman. Uh -huh. that person. Uh -huh. You ever listen to the words to that? Uh -huh. When a man loves a woman, he'll turn his back on his best friend <laughs> if, she, if he puts her down. Right. He'll spend his very last dime to give her what she needs. And right. here's my favorite. He'll sleep out in the rain if she says that's how it has to be. Yeah. What the fuck kind of guy is sleeping out in the rain because his woman tells him to? Yeah. The, oh, he's a man in love. No, yep. he's not. He's a pathetic loser. 
It's, Come on. They're, they're all like that. All by myself. <laughs> don't want to be. I mean, it was just like, uh. Yeah. You're the one and only. And then you got Elvis saying, you know, oh, baby, you got to believe me. Like, what is it? Uh, is it I caught in a trap? I can't. It's all about how she doesn't believe right. that he hasn't been sleeping around. Right. He's Elvis. Of course he's <laughs> sleeping around. Come on. Come on. Yeah. All right. So tell us again the name of the book. It's a prairie. No, it's a Carlin home companion. companion. Yes. You should have gotten Garrison Keillor to narrate the, book, the audio book. <laughs> or at least the intro, you know? Yeah. Have we, you, we didn't have any conversation with there's him. There's been no... No, no nothing. So uh, I guess everything's okay. Well, if you're going to have someone gunning for you, that's probably a pretty tame crowd. I'm guessing he was probably a fan of my dad's. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who was it? I mean, Nixon? Did Nixon? It was. I People, mean, they're definitely. Uh, you know, my dad hit a lot of libertarian tones, so he, mm. especially in his later years, so a lot of libertarians yeah. like my dad. So you get a, you get a wide range, but um, we, I quote your dad in this book. Do you? Yeah, yeah. I don't. I think. I hope it's a good quote because some of the quotes are fake out there. Yeah. Well, I should run it by you. <laughs> you should I, run it by me. The, I don't remember which one, but I quote. I mean, Mark Twain, uh, your dad, the, the Louis C.K. Actually, I. Might I was talking to a lawyer about this last night, a friend of mine who's a lawyer, about whether I need to run this by Louis C.K., but I'm thinking a potential subtitle for the book is Why Everything's Amazing But Nobody's Happy, mm. which is... God, uh, I love that. Do you know his, his um, yes. routine where he's on the airplane yes, with the Wi-Fi? Yes, goes to space and back. Right. Yeah, it's a so great that routine, he ends by saying, these days everything's amazing but nobody's happy. Right. And it's a perfect... Yeah, you might need to run that by him. Yeah, so that's, I think yeah. I think. That's, a, that's his little yeah, line. I want to make sure, and I credit him in the book. Like it's yeah. the, the epigraph is him, you know. Yeah. So it's Maybe like you write the right letter, you'll be fine. Yeah, um, but what was the line? It was fr it's from your. I think it was his last stand-up special uh -huh. HBO where he's fucking angry and he's like, "There's a club and you're not in it." That's the right? second to last one. Was that the second to last yes. one? Yes. Uh, yeah, and the American dream, they call it that, because you have uh -huh. to be asleep to that's, believe yes. it. Is yeah, that the same one? That's the one before the second to last one. Oh, but it's, around, it's right yeah, around there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So there was an anger and, uh, I mean... You know, my... I mean, I'm, I'm no expert, but I felt like he was... As he, as he got older, he was more willing to let the anger that he was probably always feeling and that motivated him a lot, the sense of injustice, yes. sort of came through more yes. harsh and brutal. And Yes, you know. he talks a lot about that. In the memoir, he talks about it. And in a, there's a great six-hour interview with the Television Academy archives that my dad sat down about six months before he died mm. um, and talks a lot about this section of his career and what it really who he really was and what it's all about what motivated him um, and and outrage is a big part of it uh, disappointment is a big part of it too yeah do you ever see uh, there's a movie called uh, breakfast with hunter hunter s thompson no but i i'm just always fascinated by him oh got to see that movie okay got to see it it's cool. it's a documentary someone was making while he was talking to... Oh, he goes outside and shoots the 
typewriter with his gun. I think, yeah. I think I've seen it. Parts and of Johnny it. Depp yeah. is in it, and yeah. Johnny's learning to play him for, for the, the movie, movie and yeah. the, you see the two of them in the car together, yeah. dressed the same, and Johnny's doing him. Yeah. There's some amazing scenes, but there's this scene where a very famous director, I don't remember who he was, but a guy, you know, we would, everyone would know his work, was initially going to do the um, uh, Fear and Loathing movie. Uh-huh. And you see him showing up at the ranch in Colorado, and you know they go inside and they're talking, and and it's you know it's one of these things where it's the director and his assistant, and the assistants like smiling and saying things that are slightly uncomfortable, <laughs> and it's that whole setup. Yes. And what they're saying is that they want to do animation right. of the the section in Fear and Loathing at the end, I think it is, where he talks about how there there was this wave of hope and potential for change that sort of washed across California and up the Rockies and then it crested and then it washed back mm. and there's this it's a very mm. beautiful passage and they said they wanted to do this in animation and he's like you want to make a cartoon of the best thing I've ever written of the most you know and he just he's outraged wow. and he like get the fuck out of here get the fuck off my property and you can see it's not staged and this right. this, this director's like what really like get the fuck out I got a gun and it, like he goes nuts anyway that you just reminded me of it because you know, the sense of outrage and disappointment yes. that people in that generation must have felt because, you know, the whole Vietnam thing, of course you're outraged. There are people dying. There, you're, you know, it's all this And they innocent. did stop a war. They did. They did. They finally stopped it and they thought they were changing the world and then, you know, it's fucking disco and... Yeah, but they sold out. No one did it to them. That's what my dad's outrage was, is that yeah. they became yuppies. Yeah. And that the 80s became what it was because whatever energy was not being honored, the people who sat out the 60s became in charge in the 80s. Right. And then the people in the 60s who didn't sit out, some of them, you know, stayed off the grid. You know, these are a lot of the bohemians we were talking about before we came on the air here. Um, But then a lot of them said, well, okay. All right, I gotta get the four hundred one k, and I right. and you know, and the country sold out. Yeah. We sold out our values, and that yeah. was my dad's outrage. Was there after seventy two when McGovern lost? My dad never voted again. Really, not yeah. even for Jimmy Carter. No, never voted again. For me, it was it was the Carter Reagan thing. When Reagan was elected, I was like, I gotta leave. Yeah, and if you I notice my dad's anger, it comes at the end of the eighties, mm. and basically it was all right. And he saw Sam Kinison. He talks about seeing Sam Kinison and Sam screaming at the audience, and he thinks, oh, we need to scream at them now. Really? Because they're that asleep. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. There, was, there was that, you know, there was that. And so that's the perspective he was sitting out was that, you know, the species, he's, he, he, just, he doesn't have a lot of hope for the species. Yeah. You know, that he thinks greed will ultimately always win. I would have loved to have been able to talk to him about bonobos. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, because they would give him hope. He, and he and might have known about them a little bit. I mean, he, he talked about how when you know, you met the individual, he had, he, you'd see the universe. You could see the mm. entire universe in a person's eyes. Yeah. And for him, that was his hope. But you get them in groups too big. You know, he always talked about that, you know, a group of a certain size is okay, but then they, 
you know, then suddenly they got armbands and then they yeah. got slogans and then they're knocking on your door. Well, this is an argument I make in this book that that we become a super organism. Yeah. I call it the swarm. Yeah. We start, we, because I don't know if you know that, I didn't know this till I was researching it. All locusts start life as grasshoppers. Right. So they're individual grasshoppers. They're cool. They're Doing chill. Their thing. And then the rains come. So then they reproduce. There are lots of grasshoppers. Uh-huh. And then the rains stop. And this is in the, in the Sahara in uh-huh. northern Africa. And then the amount of green right. yeah, contracts. And so the density of the grasshoppers remaining gets tighter and tighter. And it reaches a tipping point, And suddenly, these, their other genes are triggered. Wow. So it's the same DNA. But yeah. different genes are being yeah, expressed. Yeah, the shape of their heads changes, Whoa. their coloring changes, their legs get longer, Whoa. and they swarm and they become cannibalistic. Holy and that's shit. what a swarm is. Everybody's moving because the guy behind you is going to eat you. Right, which is capitalism. Right? Yeah. So they go into a swarm and they, they eat everything, kill everything, and then everything's gone, and then almost all of them die off, and the ones that are remaining go back to being grasshoppers. Wow. It's all right there, you know? So I, I see, I mean, I agree. I think individual people are wonderful, generally wonderful. Yeah. But when you get too many of them together, then there's an emergent intelligence that yes. comes out that's an institution or a religion or whatever. Yes. That is non-human. Yes. So that's why I always refer to hunter-gatherers because that was before the swarm. The right. swarm is agriculture. Yeah. That's when we had settlements and hierarchies yeah. and armies and all that shit started. Yeah. And that's only 10,000 years ago. I know. We're still very young as a species. But we need to go back to the grasshopper. Yeah, know? well, I think what's going to happen is I think there's going to be a super virus, and I think it's going to knock out a good portion of the humanity, Yeah. and it's going to knock it down to a place where it's going to be sustainable again. Well, there's already this thing, just in the last couple of weeks I've read, there's a, I don't know if it's a virus or a bac- it must be a bacteria that there's no antibiotic right. that, that can, you yeah. know, so it's an infection. Yeah. Do you know, and, and if obviously if this is something you don't want to talk about, don't, but I, I wonder if your dad had experience with hallucinogens. Oh, yeah, for sure. Did he? It, that's what forced the change in 69. Oh, okay, he was tripping. He dropped and, acid a lot over yeah. a couple of months period, probably 30 times or so. Was that with a psychiatrist? <clears throat> no, Because there was this guy here... Um, there's a psychiatrist, J- Jas- Jan- Janiger, I think his name was, who, here in L.A., yeah. who gave LSD before it was illegal to, like, Jack Nicholson and all these prominent people yeah. in L.A. Yeah, no, Dad was doing it with friends and stuff, yeah. and Mom did mescaline in the Taos, in the Taos Pueblo with Indians and stuff. And uh-huh. No, but, yeah, that's what shifted things for him. That's when he decided yeah. he had to walk away. Right. Yeah, it was his. It was his big awakening. It's interesting. It, I wrote a chapter about this in, in the book. I think hallucinogens are really the only, probably the only chance we have. Yeah, as my dad says, you know, that's why he liked pot also because, and he smoked pot his whole life. It's it's a value changing drug. Right. As you know, real psychedelics are. The coke is the opposite. Horrible, horrible, yeah. horrible. Because it's processed, manufactured. It's the greediest fucking drug. And there did is. he know like the coke was coca? Did he think it was? Cool we didn't or? know what it, we just everyone just did it. Yeah, it was just it part was, of that. And he was a manic guy anyway, so he liked it. He was an OCD manic guy, so he could. Yeah. He could, he could reorganize those uh, those vinyl albums right there over and over again. You know, he. 
Um, it, it fed his little bit of mania he already right. had. Um, right. Horrible drug. Yeah. Stay away from coke, kids. Yep. Take some mushrooms. Yep. Be careful. Go out in nature. Yep. Have a guide if you need one. Have a guide. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Ayahuasca is an interesting thing. I I, I had panic attack disorder, so I get a little freaky around that stuff. I haven't done shrooms in years. I would probably do shrooms again in the right situation. I actually would like to do um, now with all this kind of work I've done on myself and everything. I'd be really interested to see where it would take me. Um, but the whole out of control ayahuasca, I don't know if I could do that. I, I might, because of my panic attack stuff, I, I would be afraid that I would trigger something and not feel safe in some way. I think ayahuasca is, I mean, I've, I've only done it twice. Um, but what I like about it is that it's very physical. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you puke and shit and puke and yeah, shit and like that all. That might freak me out. But it's good. It feels good because oh, it's cleansing. It's a purgative, right? Wow. So, and there's a obviously a symbolic yes. importance Getting to it out. as well. All right. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and generally, I mean, there are there are definitely abusive situations, and you know, but at the good places, there's a lot of. Uh, like a ritualistic container. Yes. You change your diet a couple weeks before you yeah. go. No meat, no processed food, nothing. Right. And then again a week before, and then that's again beautiful. three days yeah, before. Yeah, that's great. So there's a, and then you like fly to Mexico or Peru yeah, or so wherever it's a, it is. It's a real It's ritual. a big event yeah, in yeah, your yeah, life. Yeah, yeah, and then normally you have like a week where you do five sessions. Right, right. So it, again, it's not a one-off. It's not like, oh, let's go laugh and, you know, yeah, which, yeah, yeah. which is fine Absolutely. in its place. But it is a very serious uh, yeah. adventure. So I think the the chance of it being going wrong is much lower. Yes, in because fact. you're really you're preparing your psyche for it right. on a really profound right. way. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. It's not just a going to a fish concert and <laughs> Yeah. That's my friend said. Yeah. I said, What are you doing for New Year's Eve? Because I'm dropping acid and going to a fish concert. I'm like, Well, think of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, think of how happy I am not to be there. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, thank you for doing this. This is great. I know you're busy, and we didn't know each other. I know this and you, is wonderful. You took a though. chance. I, well, I knew we would have a deep conversation, so, and that's for me, uh, my joy. So. Well, thank you very much. My and I look forward to reading your book. Yeah, great. I, I, no, I didn't. Like, I don't have one with me, but I'll, I'll get one to you. We don't. You don't even need to do that. But uh, I look forward to. I, this is my kind of stuff I live for, so I'm excited to delve into it, and then have you back into this room and. Uh, oh, this very room. And we'll we'll talk. About uh, we'll talk about sex. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. We'll, we'll go out with that. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and appreciate your support for the podcast, especially those of you who do it through fundwhatyoulove.com, where you can set it up to take a buck, five bucks, ten bucks, whatever you can afford, whatever you feel motivated to throw at the podcast every month. Uh, You don't have to think about it. It's an ongoing thing. You can cancel at any time, of course. That's fundwhatyoulove.com. That's run by Danny Osman, who also does the sound engineering for the show. You can find him at emeraldcitypro.com if you have any engineering, sound engineering needs. He's great. I vouch for him, of course. He's been doing the sound engineering for this podcast for over a year now, completely voluntarily. 
Uh, he's a cool guy. So if you have any business you want to throw his way, please do. Thanks to Basin and Range for the opening music. You can find them at basinandrangeband.com. Uh, there's a Reddit tangentially speaking discussion group. If you want to talk about episodes, throw a question at me, get a conversation started at Reddit. Just do a search for tangentially speaking, all one word. And, of course, thanks to Bennett at Shore Design T-Shirts, another guy who's been supporting this podcast from the very beginning when I had about 15 listeners. He was there. He's still there. And uh, I love him. Never met the guy, but I love him. And I sure as hell love his shirts. So you can get his shirts at shoredesigntshirts.com. And, of course, all the shirts that are at chrisryanphd.com are made by Shore Design T-Shirts in Thailand and packaged and shipped to you by my mom, Julie. Uh, Say hi to Julie if you order anything. She loves it when that happens. And, of course, last but not least, thanks to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear, Smoke Alarm, which reminds you to carpe fucking diem because you're going to die one day. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day So baby, what's a big If you want to be free, say what you want to feel, spend the night with me, I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms, we'll dance into the ground.